What's really good, everybody? This is Nathan Albach, and welcome to the podcast where we get into people's stories and go down a bunch of rabbit holes about what's really good in the world. This episode, I think, might be the deepest rabbit hole we've gone down so far. I had my great uncle Scott Leatherman on the show, also known as Gus or Dutchy or I'm sure a handful of other names that I'm completely unaware of to some people. Uh, he is a world traveler, a history aficionado, specifically on the Civil War era, um, a world-class tennis instructor and practitioner, and I'd go as far to say as he's one of the best storytellers I've ever personally known. Growing up, my family would see him maybe once a year for reunion type stuff, and he'd always have the whole room laughing and listening to his eccentric tales and political style rants. I I remember being like 11 or 12, maybe, driving to Queens in New York with my dad to clean out his apartment, and it looked like something out of a movie. I mean, books and newspapers and antiques and just stuff everywhere, and a few years ago, I wound up cleaning out his storage unit with most of that stuff in it, which was a total trip. I mean, he had, I'd say, somewhere around like a thousand books on the Civil War, maybe 500 or so on tennis, then hundreds more on random stuff from his travels with bookmarks in all of them and scribbled notes and just random stuff all over the place. You know, Now that I'm saying this out loud, it kind of makes him sound like a mad scientist or a hoarder or something. I mean, maybe he's a little bit of both. I don't know. I guess you can decide. So anyway, a few months ago when I was getting married, he flew up to the Philly area to attend from his current home in Mississippi. And one night while he was here, we popped into the studio, he had some drinks, and we hit record. (laughs) Now, anyone who knows Scott knows he's like a wind-up toy. And once you get him going on something, he just goes and goes. So this is more or less like a three-hour story that covers a bit of his childhood growing up, how he got into tennis, his world travels, some history sprinkled in, and the super bizarre urban legend-like tale that my family has heard a bunch of times in bits and pieces, but we really got into it here from when Scott lived in Fiji and had this suspenseful run-in with some locals. Uh, This is the last episode on my backlog, and it's definitely a special one. Uh, I think we went to about midnight with this thing. I mean, I was exhausted by the end of it so you know it's good uh anyway i hope you all enjoy listening to my great uncle scott as much as i did and please feel free to reach out to me on twitter or wherever else with guest suggestions or feedback going into 2019 Uh, it's been a huge honor sharing this small platform with all of you who listen where i get to hash out different beliefs and opinions and stories with people i find interesting and i really appreciate all of you for being part of the show now let's get into what's really good uncle scott thanks for coming on the podcast oh nathan my pleasure (laughs) came from the deep south you can tell by my voice right now deep south mississippi absolutely (laughs) came to visit your new home your latest home my latest home in mississippi yes i've been deeper south than that yes true (laughs) worldwide i've been much deeper south than that Uncle Scott, you have one of the craziest lives of anyone that I know. No, you get out a little bit more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know where to start. So, I mean, let's just start. I mean, for those 
people who may not know anything about you, let's maybe go through some of your childhood, what it was like growing up for you, what what were your interests? Well, Where do you, you want to start? I had a very <laughs> normal Dutch upbringing. I was uh, just a little Dutch man in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And uh, my parents were all Pennsylvania Dutchmen. They were the first ones to uh, speak English as a primary language. Mm. So this would have been early 1900s, it turns out. And they were all primary German speakers up till wow. that time. And uh, it turns out the family had been here, mom's side since 1699, and dad's side since 1721. So it goes back in the Dutch Dutch land pretty far. But, uh, you know, just raised in a very post-war middle class right. background. We had uh, we had pretensions to be upper middle, upper middle class. We had a very big house that dad had got from, I think, war profiteering, but we won't go into that. That's another story. <laughs> and after the war, they had cash and they bought a big house and fixed it up to modern standards, mm. three and a half acres in the middle of a little town called Perkasy in, in Bucks County. And uh, we had a very idyllic I had a very idyllic upbringing, a lot of time to run around and do my own thing. Unfortunately, by the time I came around, the last of five, the money had sort of flown. Uh, the business that my dad so had what made, happened? What happened? Well, the dad was uh, a hosiery man. He'd been, uh, I think he trained in hosiery mills when he was young. And uh, he and, uh, and uh, an uncle of mine, so his brother-in-law, were both trained the sort of same way in hosiery. And... And uh, that was a big thriving business once, uh, you know, available wealth came back in a later depression. And I do, from what I understand, uh, they got a loan from my grandfather, who I never met because he was dead by the time I was around, a, a farmer who in the Dutch style would hide the money in the mattress and there was plenty right. of cash and didn't trust the banks, thank God, because there was a depression, don't you know. And he gave them a loan. My uncle, his son, and, and my father, his, his uh, son-in-law, got a loan to start a little hosiery business. Now, my dad was a mechanical side. He knew the machinery, and my uncle was the business business side. So I had a little business in, in the Perkasy, Pennsylvania, and they had ended up doing well sort of because of the war. Yeah, so what year was this or what decade? Well, they started in the 30s. They started in the 30s okay. with their, uh, with their uh, business. I'm not exactly sure when. I wasn't around then. Mm-hmm. I'm old, but not that old. <laughs> the uh, the 30s, they started small, and uh, it turns out the Japanese were getting frisky in Asia. You might have heard about that mm-hmm. before they dropped bombs on us. They were awful frisky over there. And the trade in silk became interrupted. Now, hosiery, as you young people may not realize, hosiery is referring to stockings mostly. And okay. Stockings were made of silk. And they had machinery to make this silk into these lovely stockings. Had a seam in the back. And if you've seen old black and white movies, you might see the, the girls leaning back very provocatively looking over their shoulder and straightening right, their seams. Right. Very sexy. But of great annoyance to the women. So I hear. Uh, still... That's the way stockings were made. They had to have a seam, had to yeah. join everything yeah, up. Yeah. So dad and Uncle Walter, they uh, had a hosiery mill, small business. They did did business with people in Philadelphia and made the stockings. They didn't have their own brand, you know, sent them off and branded as God knows what. 
And they did all right, but as the silk trade dried up, they were going to be in trouble. There's a new business. They got bills to pay. There's no silk. What the hell? These Japanese, what are they doing up there? They end up as a new, a fairly new thing called rayon. Rayon was an artificial fiber, and it had some attributes of silk. It didn't really work that well in the machines. It didn't make a great product, but it was a product, and it was cheaper, and yeah. you get it. If the silk silk was easily broken, and there's not much you could do when you had to run your silk stocking, and the rayons would break a little less, and it wasn't as attractive. It didn't cling as good or whatnot, but they did rayon stockings for a while until the war came, and those pesky Japanese dropped bombs on the Pearl Harbor in Hawaii in 1941. Boom! Everything went to hell. Well, now, rayon, off to the war effort. Silk, gone. Japanese weren't letting any silk out. Mm. Now they're in deep doo-doo. But thank God for uh, corporate America because the boys down in Delaware and DuPont had invented a brand new formulae that was nylon. And nylon was new about 1940. And turns out nylon could do everything silk did, didn't break as well, uh, didn't break as often, and it was very solid. And worked much better in the machines than rayon. Nylon was a, huh. nylon was a miracle uh, fabric. Unfortunately, since the war had started, all the nylon that DuPont could make was diverted to the war effort. Right. So I, we don't know much about this, but the national government at that time was not very Republican, shall we say. And when things had to be done, the government put money into it. Now, the, mm. money, the government put capital in a big business like DuPont so they could build more factories and make as much rain, uh, much nylon as possible. Yeah, for the war effort. Yeah, these are parachutes. These are this, these yep. are that, all sorts of things. So DuPont expanded exponentially in a very short time, making a lot of nylon. And it turned out by 1943... As my father and uncle were like limping through with rayon, but women need stockings and stockings shall yeah, be made. Right. Even if they're not good stockings, there is some profit in it. As they were limping along with rayon and barely making their bills, nylon became so prevalent that the government said, Ha! Now, DuPont, we've helped you build your factories. You've made so much nylon. We got everything we need. You must supply nylon for the little people out there, whatever they their monthly allotment, yearly allotment was before the war, mm -hmm. that's what they shall have huh. now. So Dad and Uncle Walter all of a sudden had as much nylon, really, as they could, because they didn't have a lot of labor. They only had a limited amount of machines. But they could get all the nylon they had before the war. Maybe they didn't, maybe they had more labor before the war. They would sell some back to DuPont. They would sell some to other companies who mm. had more production. They made cash money. Cash money. So that's where that taxable. money came from. It was a little bit of extra on the side. Plus, <laughs> nylons were gold. Right? Every woman needed nylons and silk was breaking. What are they going to do? Yeah. Cash money. You could pay your milkman in nylons. You could pay your breadman in nylons. You could pay the butcher in nylons. <laughs> you could probably pay the taxman in nylons. You had a, a something that everyone wanted for their girls. Okay. And so they, you know, could barter and whatnot, yeah, and yeah. not pay maybe to, you know, we say, 
uh, 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 tax avoidance, shall we say? There, I'm sure there was some <laughs> of that during the war, and they might have been participant. I am speculating on this. All you lawyers out there, I have no <laughs> firsthand evidence. I am speculating on where the freaking money came from to buy a very large three-story farmhouse in the middle of town that had three acres of land. And rehabilitated up to modern standards in 1947 when there had been a war on and you were making nylons the whole time. They were too old to be drafted, by the way, born in early 1900. So 1947, big house bought, lots of land. He's looking like gentry here with the the factories are gone from one factory, one small factory into another small factory and one a little bit larger. And they owned those outright. So they were making nylons to beat the band. Now, early 1950s, post-war boom, money everywhere, money to be made. Right. Certainly women love their, love their nylons still like they always did, going out to dancing, need their nylons, money flowing. The big companies with nylon, you could do things non-traditionally. You could do things differently. In fact, you could make nylon stockings without a seam in them mm. because nylon was not silk. Unfortunately, my father and my uncle being older, and my mother and my auntie also being older, had no aware, were not aware of the fact that perhaps the modern day girls did not want to bend over provocatively over their shoulder and straighten that crooked line down the back of their leg. Perhaps they would just like to apply the nylons and let them be for the rest of the evening. So my father, when all the big companies were dumping these brand new machines, but they were seamed stocking machines, while they were dumping them, my uncle and my father were busily buying them up at 10 cents on the dollar and oh, placing them no. in so they their put all their investments factories. into them. Yes, they did. It's any relevant technology. Because certainly this is only a fad, <laughs> and that the women will come to their senses and will buy and seamed stockings. Exactly. <laughs> Now, I'm sure you people out there and my nephew here can find parallels to such thinking nowadays, but it's not for me to make such things. <laughs> they, me looking from farther away say, how can you be that stupid? But not being a woman with nylons and not knowing the trade, I'm sure that's very easy for me to say. Though they did go bankrupt very shortly. Yeah, so that's what happened. That's what happens when you overinvest in a uh, an older technology, shall we say. Right. And I was born right around that time. <laughs> so as the money was fastly leaving the family business, and my father went from business owner, since he knew mechanics, into the trades of fixing other people's machines or making other people's machines going, I was born... The lucky boy. I was born in a family with a big house and three acres of land. And actually, my mother going back to work. Oh. <laughs> I, was, I was a latchkey child. And it's my father working night shift because he, he was older and couldn't get the day shift job. Yeah, because you're the youngest of, you said five. Of five. And like the, the, what's young? Well, how, closest how, what's, is nine years. I was going to say, it's like, what's the distance between you surprise, and the oldest? Surprise, baby. And between me and the oldest is about. 
21 years. Wow. I have a nephew who's 21 who was born my year. That is... <laughs> I'm five months older than my oldest nephew. That's crazy. <laughs> and my, my oldest sister was not a teenage bride. She was pregnant in 21. <laughs> she popped out that puppy and, <laughs> at, at her 20, you know, near her 21st birthday. So, yes, I... I was at the end of the line, as it, yeah. as it were. So was it rough for you growing up? What was it like? Like, what were your I interests? Didn't know nothing. Or, I didn't this, know nothing. This is shit. all you knew. I so. had the biggest house that everyone I knew. Yeah, right. I had friends who were doctors. <laughs> oh, my friends' parents were doctors. Yeah, right. <laughs> they didn't have three acres of land and a big old house. I did not know better. Did not. So the house, but no money. Me. That, was, that yes, was the family. That was it. And the house was it wasn't paid for, but it was pretty much paid for. So yeah. I'm sure the mortgage was very small. And I did notice in the early 60s, when I was about eight or so, that half the land was sold off to make a house for someone else. Yes. So there was a house being built on half of our land, which just happened to have a tennis court on it. God damn it. So it got you into tennis? I was going to ask. No, the tennis, no one played tennis, but they were too old. (laughs) I I was brought up with a tennis court in my front yard. And I didn't play tennis yet. By the time I was interested in tennis, they had sold it. it was tennis cre- court was a parking lot. I'll have you know. Oh, jeez. It yes. at least created some kind of neural connection, yes. maybe. Yes. I did Planted see a my, seed. I did see my 13-year-old brother play a tournament and and, and finals, and, and so I knew I had some tennis in the family. But yeah. But, yeah, I was not playing. I was playing baseball like everyone else and playing pickup football with the boys, you know, and getting muddy and stuff like that. So I did all sorts of sports. But by the time I got to be 12 or something, I was tired of those adults telling me what to do. Oh, little Rebel Scotty. Yeah, I was 12. <laughs> I played my baseball, and I wasn't that good. I played every spot in the field except pitcher. I played first base, second base, shortstop, third base, every outfield, and I even caught for a day. Didn't like it very much. Too much bending. Wasn't for you. Wasn't for me. Nah. So what? Like what? At what age did you start to spark interests and identity and like figure out what you was it late teens? The like? individual tennis thing got me interested when I was done with that organized. Okay. We didn't have organized football. We didn't have soccer. We didn't, all we had was baseball. Yeah. America's was, pastime. Yeah, I was okay at baseball. I was not uh, obviously. I wasn't. Didn't burn up the barn because I played every goddamn position. But I wasn't terrible because I played every position. <laughs> so I. Could I could throw, I could catch, you know, I could move. I was good enough, but I didn't have any any spark for the game. Right. Now, my brother, 13 years older, he played football and basketball, but his third sport was tennis hmm. in high school, which is odd because tennis, again, well, we had a court. It wasn't that odd in specifics, but in general, you don't link football, basketball, you're going to think, baseball. Yeah. No. Exactly. It was football, basketball, <laughs> tennis. So maybe as a tw- as 11 or 12-year-old when I was done with the league, I thought, well, if he could play tennis, then I can too. Wow, how hard can it be? So when was it? When did you get into it? I was, oh, dear, he was in finished college, finishing college, about when I got interested. So, yeah, I was about 10. You know, okay. nine or ten, and he, uh, my brother would take me out for a lesson every so often. He back from school, or he worked at a summer camp. Your dad was director of a summer. Uh, your granddad was director of a summer camp. Okay, up in Massachusetts, and my brother got a job up there doing what? Teaching tennis, <laughs> and I was his guinea pig on learning. We had books back then. There was nothing on TV course, no about YouTube. tennis. Yeah. No YouTubes. <laughs> there was no 
pipes connecting us with information. No, right. none of that. So they had books, and he learned something, and he read. He had a tennis magazine. There was one out, and he had a collection of those. So he knew something about tennis, but teaching was sort of new. I was his guinea pig. That's probably why I got interested in tennis. I could learn from my brother. Right. Spend time with my brother. Was he like, did you look up to him? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He was God. I used to watch football games. In fact, uh, when he was in college, again, he's 13 years older. So I was, yeah, when he was in college, when he started college, I was five. So when he was playing junior, senior, I was seven, eight, whatever. And uh, he used to go to all the games. My dad would pay me 50 cents, which was top dollar back then. I'll tell you, kids, 50 cents was something. <laughs> pay me 50 cents not to go to the away games. Why? Just because I was, was a pain in the ass. I was right. a rookie son of a bitch. I'd be <laughs> driving up to Long Island or something, right. rooching around for yep. three hours. Our dad said, oh, no. I'll give you money not to go. <laughs> I was, yes. I said, yes, okay, that'll be fine. <laughs> You can I've seen him off. play football before. Yes, I was even back then a mercenary. So <laughs> it could be had for 50 cents back then. But kids, hey, take this for granted. 50 cents was at least $5. Right. And today's money. Yes, at least. <laughs> maybe 10 for what you could buy. So I had a gallon of gas. was 29 cents. You figure it out. So uh, I didn't have to worry about gas then. But still, you get the idea. Penny candy. Right. Two for Two for a penny. Lots of that. 50 cents. <laughs> So I could be bought off. But, yes, he was he was my idol. I only had sisters, see, so he's the only brother. The, uh, you know, me being a guinea pig probably spiked my interest because he was not a bad teacher. He was all right. And uh, so I taught him a little something, and he taught me a lot of something, and then I started, took it from there. Then I so thought, you kept on tennis. Like, that was like the And it was individual where all this other sport that I had done. All the sport I did was individual because the kids would organize it themselves, right. except for baseball, which is organized by the adults. Yep. I had a, adult coaches and all that. So it was uh, different, you know, individual sport. I was about that age, maybe, where you start to get slightly individualized. Yeah, developing your yeah, ego. All 10, that. 11. Yeah, I said, well, this is not so bad. There's nothing else like this. There was no golf back then. Nothing on the TV. Well, they'd have TV, a little bit of golf. I said, Boring. Golf is boring. <laughs> and not a, especially in black and white children. Yeah. Black and white, very boring. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, tennis was it was it for me. And we had a little closet in our kitchen. I never told you about. Never told no. you about this. In our kitchen, it was a very big old kitchen, and it had uh, three closet doors. One closet door seemed to have a lot of shoes in it that I remember. Shoes and and coats that probably people only wore a few times a year. And the middle closet had. Uh, I don't know, they had stuff. I don't know what. I can't remember what. The third closet door, the clear closet door, was a sports store. You'd open that up. And I'm telling you now, there was everything in that in that door from a .30-06 rifle to tennis ball cans littering the floor right. and old tennis rackets. The treasure some closet. Yes, yeah, some of them with strings. <laughs> Archery, there was, uh, I remember there was a bow and there were some arrows in there. <laughs> <laughs> open for anyone to visit. Of course, just and, open the door. Yes, good. No take locks. these arrows out if I wanted to assassinate my friend. I could have done it with... <laughs> Now, no, normal not, Friday afternoon. Normal Friday afternoon. Yeah. Take that out, son of a bitch. Piss me off. <laughs> so there's all sorts of things. Don't do this today, children. Do not do this today. They'll put you in jail. Different world. Yes, different <laughs> world. So uh, 
I had access to tennis racket. Maybe it wasn't the right size for me. And tennis balls that were old and didn't bounce too good. But it was good. I was There's only something. 10 or 11. Something. Yes. Yeah. I was had to go out and do something with it. And I was motivated then. So I did. I'd play tennis. My sister played. My youngest sister played tennis. I remember seeing her play tennis in high school. And I remember the use of the tennis court a few times. It was used before it got sold. My youngest sister is nine years older. She she played with her friends. There was a friend of hers in the neighborhood who played. And uh, uh, that friend's younger brother, who was older than me, they would play. So I, I, I saw that court actually used as a tennis court. So I sort yeah, of yeah. knew what tennis looked like. I just wasn't old enough to do it. Children did not play tennis back then. Right. We had to be a teenager. <laughs> did, did you know what you wanted to do? Like, what, what, what do you think you wanted to do at that age? Hit ball. You just wanted to, you just wanted to play See sports. ball. Hit ball. So, <laughs> make ball go over net. That was very important. Make ball. I didn't know it at the time, but I wanted to see ball hit ball. That was... So what did you like want to go to school for when you got a little older? Like, what did you want to do as a career? Did you have any aspirations? Or... <sighs> no, no, I had no idea. I liked a lot of different things. Yeah, a lot of so, interests. Uh, yeah, I had good teachers, so it just naturally came to me that I'll be a teacher. I like this teaching. I like yeah. these teachers. I've had some good teachers. I had some bad teachers, but I thought, yeah, teaching's all right. That's what I. Yeah. That's what I thought. So, never entered my mind I could teach tennis. There weren't. Uh, there was no tennis boom yet. Right. I got like, high school. Like culture-wide, at yes, least. Yes, there yeah. was no awareness. Tennis was still in the feet. Bill Tilden sport. Right. He was gay, you know. Yes. Though we didn't use that word back then. <laughs> <laughs> little boy diddle little boys. So that was known. Anyhow, it was a very different sport. It was not uh, a cultural... How was it looked at in the broader culture? Uh, it, was, it was very odd that my brother played macho sport like football he's fullback yeah undersized fullback five foot ten probably 160 pounds oh, soaking wow. wet and he played basketball and then tennis that was looked on as i'm sure it was looked on as different yeah but he was obviously an athlete he couldn't have done all those things he from what i understand took up tennis for the only good reason there is to take up tennis the ladies. He, he had a girlfriend. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> his girlfriend. His girlfriend had a family that still had money, unlike ours. Mm. And she was able to take lessons from a, an actual tennis professional. But she was getting good. She was getting, and she was a very benevolent young lady. I remember her, her name was Gogo. I liked her myself. She was very nice. And Gogo would come, and she, whatever she learned. She'd take Jerry out in the court and she'd try That's to great. show him what she'd learned. And he was athletic enough. He could take it up or discern enough of what she learned yeah, yeah. To, to use it. And that eventually trickled down to me. Now, see, here's where trickle-down works, children. <laughs> Economics, it does, not, it does not work. <laughs> trickle-down. I'm telling you what trickles down, people. May I say it? It's piss and shite that pickles that trickles down. It is, but also knowledge trickles down. Knowledge yeah, does trickle down. Yeah. So I, I had a trickle-down Tennis uh, education, but uh, don't use that in economics, kids. It's not right. <laughs> Trickle down. I think we've already found that out, but we're going to try it again just to be sure. Anyway, <laughs> I did take up the tennis, and maybe Gogo, his girlfriend, was a part of the reason too. I said, "That's hey, so interesting." There's some hot chicks who played this game of tennis. There aren't any other sports that I was know it of. Primarily female the sport that time. Where the girls and guys can play tennis together. This is mixed doubles thing. Mm. This is this is revolutionary. Yeah. I had never thought of that before. But, yeah, I mean, I, I'd seen my sister play yeah. in a mixed game. I don't think I've ever seen my brother play mixed doubles. But, 
you know, I knew their concept. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd see my sister play tennis matches. And so I knew girls played it. Was that widespread? Like, what was it like, like, between guys and girls? Like, was it was it seen as more of a girl's sport? Like, were guys and girls permitted to play together yes. regularly? It yeah. was uh, maybe... It wasn't looked on as being as athletic, and okay. certainly was no contact. Right, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was looked on being less than manly, perhaps, because yeah. there's no contact, except when you're racking the ball, which can be taken badly too. So the the tennis in the day was looked on as oh, that's an interesting sport. Uh, let's talk about uh, Penn State, what they're doing. So it was off the radar, and again, there weren't that many individual sports. Now the tennis. Lucky for me, and this is the only reason that I I took up a business as a tennis person, was that as I progressed through high school, it just so happened that tennis went from a totally amateur sport into an open sport. Oh, wow. So, like, perfect timing. Yes. And, and I was aware enough of things through my brother's tennis magazines of how the amateur sport worked. And then all of a sudden, and, and the professionals, people who took cash money, yeah. a surprise, they were totally, oh, they're like shunned, like Dutchmen. Huh. You shunned, you're in it, shunning. The, the professionals weren't allowed to traipse the grounds, the hallowed grounds of, <laughs> of the amateur sports. Okay. Anyone who turned professional and took a money for paying, a contract for paying, was tossed out. They talk about the Grand Slams in tennis. Well, the Grand Slams till 1968 were entirely amateur. The only money you got was, what was it, 10 pounds a day, which in that day was maybe 28, 22, 10 pounds, $28 a day. Okay. You could take as expenses. That was reasonable money. I mean, you certainly got your hotel and some food since they were they were probably giving you food at the tournament anyhow. You could do all right on $28, but you weren't going to get, you were going to make your way around the world on $28 yeah. a day. Yeah, yeah. All right. So the boys took a little under the appearance money under the table or they sold their extra, extra racket strings or they, they did this or that, hustled, yeah. made a little extra money. They turned a blind eye to that. <laughs> the uh, amateurs were allowed to do that as long as it wasn't up front. Right. You know, it was down there low under the table. But when you took your money up front and said, I'm playing for money, I won Wimbledon, god damn it, now I'm going to turn <laughs> pro, you got a guarantee. One person a year, maybe one, got a guarantee. $100,000 a year was a poop wow. load of money back then. Oh, yeah. But you had to play your guts out for that from one town to the other to the another, it's called barnstorming. And just like the old biplane, you know, yeah, they would barnstorm yeah, yeah. around Going one everywhere. place. On in a Take station on wagon. Covers. Yeah, station wagon with the, everything in the back. They brought their own court, their rackets and balls. So it was, a, it was a hard work, and there weren't many people who could do it. In 1968, things have been progressing a little bit. And mind you, let's talk context here. Golf had been open... Since the 1930s, early 30s, not tennis. We're talking 1968. Yeah. 1968 happened to coincide, children, with me being in high school. So as <laughs> things started to hot up a little bit, there was an American 
called Lamar Hunt. And those of you who know something about sport history, Lamar Hunt was was an oil millionaire from Texas who had bought a pro franchise called the Kansas City Chiefs and turned them into champions of the uh, American Football League. So Lamar Lamar Hunt had a lot of money, had interest in sports, and... was a you know second generation money guy, so he didn't have to fool with the business so yeah. much. This is where his money went. So made the Kansas City Chiefs is one of the top teams back in the sixties. I'm talking children; they were very good, and that also f- helped force the American Football League and the National Football Football League to join to make what we know now as the NFL. Interesting, it wasn't that way? Now Lamar Hunt conquering that area of interest, decided, this here tennis, this individual sport, this is something I want to get involved in. Now he's from Texas, remember. I want to get involved in this here tennis. <laughs> so it's an accurate accent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm from Texas, and I talk I talk funny. <laughs> so he took his money. Now he's still involved. But Texas, tennis is a little bit of money. He bought, bought, I think, eight amateurs right out from the game. And these are amateurs from... Ex-Wimbledon champion. Like the best of the best. Some of the best, but not just the best. Guys who had personality, guys who had a variance in nationality. Mm. He bought a few Australians because they were the best, a few Americans because they were the second best. He bought out like a South African guy, a New Zealander, a Frenchman, I think. He had a little bit of an Englishman. Okay, so he okay. had it covered, like the the Grand Slam tournaments, the four big tournaments in tennis: Australia, France, England, and America. So he had a so representative on his team of eight, at yeah, least one yeah. from yeah. each of those countries. And these guys were good, but they weren't all the top, the best, like in the old days. Okay. Oh, he just skimmed, skimmed right. off, <laughs> off some of the best. And at the same time, there was another group who saw the advantage of it, and I think it was independent thinking, you know, great ideas. Right. Spring from many places at once. Another group, American Money too, bought up another eight players also. So now there were 16 of the best players in the world from all over, not just America, not just Australia, all over, that were sucked out of the amateur. And now Wimbledon's looking at say. We are the world's championship here at Wimbledon. We cannot deign to hold a tournament without the best players. We're going to have an open tournament in 1968. Fuck the rest of you. (laughs) 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 The tennis, the the head exploded in the tennis world. But it made sense. I mean, Wimbledon was the biggest tournament, as it is now. U.S. Open is right there, but biggest tournament, prestige. They said, no, this ain't right. All right. We, it's been right for the last hundred years, but it ain't right now. This yeah. is not good. We have the best tournament. We must have the best players. So they said, 1968, open tournament. Without consulting, per se, anyone else. They said, yeah. we're on. So huh. everyone else is scrambling. Oh, crap. The British have done it now. Mother- <laughs> but they know that they're most conservative. So if they see the reason to it. They can cop to it and say, well, the British did it first. It wasn't right. our idea. Right. It's a British idea. If it goes south, oh, the British did it. No. Yeah. If it goes good, it's like, wasn't that a brilliant idea we had with the British? Wasn't it brilliant? <laughs> so, 68, French open. French went open. That was the first tournament of the year back then. And then Wimbledon was open. Both great successes, best players, amateurs and, and professionals. You know, mixed. I think the final was... 
uh, French Open was two of the brand new professionals. Wimbledon, two of the brand new professionals for finals. They battled each other for the money. Yeah. It wasn't a lot, but they battled each other more than they're used to having. At the U.S. Open, 1968, the wheels come off. 1968, the U.S. Open, an amateur got to the final against a professional. The amateurs happened to be a black dude from Virginia, Arthur Ashe, got to the finals of the first U.S. Open. That's why he has a stadium named after him. Wow. Got to the finals. He had won the U.S. Amateur Championship in singles and doubles that year. They still had to have an amateur championship. Yeah. And he came into there at the, the U.S. Open as not near a top seed because he's so amateur. Yeah. Fucking blasted his way through the tournament into the final against a Dutchman who'd somehow beaten all, you know, beaten Australians and the Australians had beaten each other. This Dutchman was one of the professionals, Tom Hocker from Holland. In the finals against Arthur Ashe. Arthur Ashe is a servant volley guy. It's grass courts. He went through this this Dutchman like a hot knife through no butter. No way. Yes, he stoned him. Stoned him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you're talking tennis, you're talking individual sport. <clears throat> talking, you know, you're on a you're on a roll. Right. Well, this guy had won some big tournaments on grass this summer. And then rolls into the U.S. Open and got a big-ass chip on his shoulder. Right. Not only is he an amateur, he black. Yep. He's the only black man in the whole world. And that's 1968, right? There's 100, 128 people in the yeah. tournament. He the black man. He's it. That's it. That's just him right there. No black women. There's one black man. It was 1968. 1968. Wow. And you know what else has happened in America in 1968, 67, 68. There's a lot of people. Yep. So was this national news? Was this just was this a big, big yeah. news? And not only was he black, he had graduated from college. He was UCLA, if I remember right. Won the NCAAs. Educated, well-spoken fellow. And a lieutenant in the U.S. Army, I'll wow. have you know, because we had the draft back then. So he's a lieutenant, Arthur Ashe, that won the U.S. Open. Could he take money? No, he was an amateur. <laughs> He got his $28 a day. Maybe, I'm not even sure he got that because he was on extended duty from the U.S. Army. So I'm not even sure what he got paid. He might have only got his Army pay. You know who got the $10,000 prize money? The guy that lost? Yes, Tommy Ocker. No $10,000 in his what? freaking pocket. Maybe that's why he lost. It didn't matter. Goddamn. <laughs> he Jeez. won or not. He knew that shit. So this guy's got a stadium named after him. Yeah, though, Arthur's so got the stadium. Tommy Ocker's known in Holland maybe a little bit. But uh, <laughs> he's a good player. I saw him play many So where times. were you at during all this? Like, what? I was in high school. My eyeballs about, so, yeah. So you're man. all into it. You're following this whole thing? I'm or? telling you. First time, tennis used to be on the TV once a year. Once a year. They'd have the U.S. championships on Wide World of Sports. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, this was a very, this is the only sports program we had children. Besides the football being on the telly and the baseball being on the telly, we had Wide World of Sports. It was on Sunday and it would have every sport. They'd have skiing, you know, from Europe, uh, satellite delayed skiing. They'd have, uh, they might have had curling even back then, who no one ever heard of. They have all sorts of wackadoodle sports. Yep. But Wide World Sports would have the finals of the U.S. championships before it was U.S. Open. They had the finals on there. And if you had on your black and white TV, you could watch it. You could watch it. <laughs> but that summer in 1968, tennis started to hit the TV in NPR. It wasn't called NPR back then. Educational TV. Mm. Started to cover tennis from Boston. Bud Collins, who's a, who became the most well-known and beloved tennis uh 
personality, uh, but he was a newspaper man originally, a writer. Yeah. But he started covering tennis for the boss, one of the Boston educational TV channels. Huh. And he did that whole summer of 68. And Arthur Ashe was the story, you know. Wow. National amateur t- singles, national doubles, and U.S. Open. And Bud Collins was, was on TV, Channel 12 in Philadelphia, was on TV. You heard his voice, you knew, and Arthur Ashe from there. So it was like a story. Yeah. It wasn't just that it popped up now in Wildwood Sports. Now it's a whole story. This was when the narrative started to build around yes. the sport. Okay. And individual sport. What, 60s? Individuals. Yep, it's uh, all about the individual. Oh, down with the machine. Yep. Uh, individual sport. Exciting. Amateurs, professionals. Black fella, where'd he come from? What the hell's his backstory? Yeah. What a great, great backstory, So it's getting people like interested oh, in the story yes. and the, something that they would never have had exposure never to before. Never exposed yeah. to it at all. I see black people with their helmets on and shit and Blackie Rob- Jackie Robinson, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Good news. But it's, again, team sports. So team it's like sports. Not, as, not as highlighted individual. on the individual. He could be the white person. You know yeah. what's happened down yep. south. He'd be, I don't even know if they showed it down south for that matter. Wow. I don't even know. Maybe it was banned because Arthur Ashe yeah. was in it. Maybe yeah, there's yeah. some technical difficulties. Have to ask my friends in Mississippi about that. <laughs> but it was it was news. Now, bang! Now that's a a point of explosion. And I was a junior, junior in high school. Super <laughs> so, impressionable. Yes, I was. And that was probably the first time I got to watch TV, uh, tennis on the TV. Really. I think I took my TV outside, a little portable black and white. I remember putting boxes around, uh, cardboard boxes, and a blanket so I could actually watch <laughs> it outside because it's too fucking hot to be yeah. inside. We right. didn't have air conditioning back then, children. Didn't have it. <laughs> Just had fans. So I got outside. I got that thing. I got to watch it outside. And there's also a very good – this wasn't right then, but it would be a few months later – a very good writer uh, – of not just not sports articles. Oh God, now I can't remember his name. I told you I'd come up blank. It's called uh something in motion. Po not poetry in motion. Wrote for the New Yorker magazine an incredible article about Arthur Ashe, the young black dude, playing a very privileged white dude in the semifinals of the US Open. And this was a real tough match for Arthur to get through. Uh, Clark Grabner. So was this? This was that year, okay. 1968. And Clark Grabner was a New York guy, you know. Uh, he, they called him Superman. He looked like Clark Upscale, Kent. They looked like, like yeah. Clark Kent. Okay. He had it. And he had one of these Got brand the new. Oh, he had one of these brand new T2000 steel rackets way yeah. before Jimmy Connors had come out with it. And he was built solid like an Adonis. And Arthur Ashe was a skinny black dude, you know, look like yeah. he, you know, he's a lieutenant in the army, but he looked like he could have come from, you know, straight off the savannah like he was chasing down yeah. cheetahs and shit. He was firm and, and and sleek and everything. I think Gravener was a was already a lawyer or something or worked on Wall Street. You can just something. like imagine the narrative as you say oh, it. This it was just excellent. all in the media. Like it, it was uh, and and that was under that wasn't played big because tennis wasn't big. Right. But this article came out soon after, and I think it was the New Yorker, which is more literary magazine at the time, and it was a fantastic article, and it's just a contrast, you know, this and that, and the intervals of sport, and the back and forth, and of course it mentioned the tennis shots and the way they played. They played very similar, and Arthur Ashe had a traditional wooden racket, and this Clark Kramer, this Clark Kent had this 
new brand new steel shaft and it was <laughs> right. pounding down aces and and so it was just like the ultimate black white rich america poor america yeah, new yeah. old tennis new tennis right it just helped things go go off you know get the attention of people with money that would be reading like new york get their attention and help oh yeah this is uh, that was yeah that's good let's put some money in that so boom 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 started to build these guys who had who had stole the amateur players they had put circuits together where these guys would play all during the year yeah. in the winter time when you didn't have traditional tournaments. So they played indoor stadiums, stadiums like that. You know, basketball wasn't as big. So places that didn't have basketball teams, they could get this tennis troupe to come on through for a week. Right. And so it was a traveling thing. And people started to take notice. Tennis was an all-year thing, not just in the warm weather. So I started to build, build, build. People started to put money into indoor tennis here in the Northeast. There were some indoor tennis places that popped up right around there, 68, 69, 70. Indoor tennis started to come up where we couldn't play tennis when I was a kid. My brother couldn't play tennis during the wintertime. There's no way. I think there's a place, the Armory, down in Philadelphia, and most of these armories in the big cities had a very slick uh, cement floor, Mm -hmm. and they would... uh, they would have, when the National Guard wasn't there using it, they had places marked out. They had tennis like courts marked court. out. Yeah. Yes, and they had big netting around to, to keep the balls from flying across. <laughs> but the, the armies could accommodate a lot of, but it would be really fast. It would be faster than, faster than grass, you know. Yeah. Ball would really shoot through. But that was like it. If you had money, you had connections, you'd get to the armory and play a little bit. I played in high school in the winter on my gym floor. My coach was young when I got to be a junior and uh, just out of college, and he was a tennis player. So he would he would get the gym set aside on a Saturday morning, and we had a portable net, and he had lines drawn on the hallowed basketball, <laughs> had tennis lines drawn yeah. on, and we'd play there. But you know what a gym floor is like, oh, waxed yeah. wood? We'd be playing serve again. No, you can hit a ground stroke. You'd have to serve and get your butt to knit and try to hit a volley as quick as you can. <laughs> and it was it, if it bounced, you're probably going to lose. So it was different kind of tennis, but it was a lot of like what the pros played because yeah. they were playing on fast surfaces too. So it was it was not attractive tennis. It's not a tennis like we see nowadays, a very attractive uh, sport of uh, stamina and, right. and, and some brute Super force. Super high pace. Yeah. yeah, this, this is pace. But short, bang, 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 an average point might have lasted an average point. If it went five seconds, that would be probably a long point. That's probably three hits. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a long point. Nowadays, that's, you know, that's a, a fault. It's a totally fault. different yeah. game. So it was something else, but it caught the people's attention. It was different. And American money just pushed it. It was all American push. The tennis boom in Europe. Didn't come till they had their own players. I worked in Europe. So you're saying it followed tennis. America's boom? Yes, America okay. made the boom. Now Australia was there, but they didn't have the money. Right. You know, they so supplied the culture the, was with a, yes, okay. the right. culture. There. It, tennis in Australia was like baseball. Mm. It was close to baseball. It was neighborhood driven, neighborhood players, and kids played it early with adults. They had leagues, neighborhood yeah. leagues, when I worked in Australia. So kids are growing up, getting really, really good, but there's no they're infrastructure. Learning. Yes, they're yeah. just learning by osmosis. And, they're, you know, they would have tennis courts in the backyard. Now, the backyard wasn't like my three acres when I was a kid. The backyard was 
kind of small. Yeah. You, know, you can fit a tennis court in there without much running room and not much else. But in an an upper class, middle class, Austri- uh, Sydney, say, neighborhood, they might have three or four houses that had courts in their backyard. Mm. And they, some had lights, not very good. But they'd have neighborhood leagues. We right. just said, oh, come on out. We're playing. It's Wednesday night. Come on out <laughs> to my place. We're having tennis now. Bring the beer. We'll have something on the barbie. And we're going to have everyone play. You know? So they'd have, like, uh, a mixed doubles. They'd have men's doubles. They'd have... Well, there wouldn't be any singles. Yeah. It was all team stuff. That's cool. And the kids would play in with the adults. If they could hold up their racket, they'd get aces thrown down their neck. And, you know, and they'd learn to make do. And they'd get up there and volley. And they'd watch. And they'd learn. And... Didn't have lessons. I paid fifty cent an hour for group lessons or something. Even when I went there in the late seventies, you couldn't make any money as a yeah. tennis pro. There's no way because it was it was baseball. You couldn't make any money as a baseball teacher either. Right. You know. Right. So it was more like that. And uh, so they provide a lot of players while America provided the money and the place for them to to make it. And a lot of them came to live in America too. I worked for one of them. So tennis just. Started swell, swell, swell. And since you could play in all the old spots, it was now a, a new sport, wintertime, indoors, fast, yeah. fast, fast, fast. And then an old sport with the old venues and everything. And that just made it more interesting if yeah, you're talking tons of variables. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't on TV, really. Not, But it started to catch a little bit, a little bit here and there, the finals, especially if an American was in it. They might find a way to broadcast it's the like finals. It's like the Olympics, almost. It's just yeah. like that like global element of just yep. culture versus so culture. It was year after fun. year after year. You didn't yep. have to wait. Just built right on. Yeah. So... Tennis really, you know, I was okay at it. It started to build. I got more interest. I got better. And tennis got bigger and better, too, as I went from high school to college. Yeah, and then I wanted to be a teacher. I was trained as a teacher in college. I have a history degree, I'll have you know. And secondary education, comprehensive social studies with a history emphasis that's what it says in my diploma. That's a lot of words in one diploma. <laughs> but I was... So I you was, wanted to be a... You went to school to be a history I teacher. I went to school, but then I, I'd already worked two years after the, working in factories for the summer. I said, hell with this. I ended up getting some jobs at summer camps, like your dad, right. like your granddad worked at, had worked at. He didn't do that anymore by the time I came around, but the idea was there. Yeah. It's a Jewish summer camp. Why shouldn't I work there? My brother did. My brother-in-law ran one. Why shouldn't I work there? I applied. And two summers, I worked at a Jewish summer camp where tennis was just one of the sports. You know, it yeah. wasn't the sport. It was a sports camp. Eight weeks, poor kids. Oh, my God. So I worked there for, for two different years. And then tennis was big enough that they had actual tennis summer camps. Mm. And as a junior and a senior in college then, and after that, I worked at summer tennis camps and I had learning how to teach learning from people who knew what they were doing and been yeah. doing it for 20, 30 40 years and it got better. So when did that become work for you because you traveled did, so you, I know you've traveled all over the world so with your travels was that through tennis? It, or how did this? Every every one of my travels was because of tennis except the first. Okay. And the first happened right after I can't say it wasn't it wasn't because of tennis, but I traveled between junior and senior years over to Germany in a study. Now I'm making those inverted quotes, kids. A study <laughs> tour 
that was chaperoned by my tennis coach and his girlfriend, who happened to be the female tennis coach. Now, getting on this trip had nothing to do with tennis, but it it sold me on going over. I had taken right. German in school. I had an old German teacher who was well-intentioned, but bad. And then <laughs> my tennis coach came in right out of school and was a German teacher. Oh, wow. So I'd already had enough of German in two years. Were you and big into German history then? German the family, history. Oh, like yeah. PA Dutch and I all that. I was interested in that, but uh, they didn't speak proper German. It wasn't yeah. high German. They spoke some bastardized <laughs> part of German that I couldn't barely understand because they talked so fast. Yeah. And there was so much English involved. But I was interested in the culture, and that was my culture. Why should I learn Spanish or French when I'm German? Of course. And right. they never taught me anything. God damn it. I'll learn it better than you. <laughs> so maybe it's a competitive thing. I don't know. But I had two years with a bad teacher, and I got some basics, but I was terrible at writing it. I could. I was getting Fs. A lot of mis- grammar mistakes. Grammar and tennis is grammar and grammar tennis. German is bad. <laughs> grammar and tennis is not easy either. But grammar t- in German is horrible for yeah. an English speaker. So I was getting a lot of bad marks. But my ear was very good. Okay. Because I was Pennsylvania German, maybe, and I'd heard them. You know, languages are like music. You you get a rhythm for it, and you can make yourself sound good, even if it's not. Perfect. Mm, yeah. I had a friend in New York City who who did the best gibberish languages of all time. Really? He didn't know any proper languages. But like Sid Caesar back in the 50s, he could do this fake Italian, fake Spanish, fake French, fake German, fake... He Say could like do... a real word every five words oh, yeah. and just kind of gibberish Oh, what did he just say? I caught that? No. Oh, but that didn't go anywhere. He'd do German at me and I'd say, oh, no, that was... Bullshit, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, he had the rhythm. Yeah. He had an ear for it. Right. So I had I wasn't good at doing that, but I had a rhythm for German, and so I, I could speak it well. I yeah. sounded that is, well. That, that, that does play a lot into understanding someone else's language, because there's certain languages where when you say, you could say something, you could say the words right, but phonetically, if you're off, you could mean a totally yes, different thing. Yes, mean than, a very bad thing. Yes, yeah. a very wrong thing. Uh, so as my tennis coach became my German teacher. Not only that did that guarantee that perhaps my grades would be better than they should be, <laughs> but he was a very interesting fellow. And yeah. uh, he organized this trip that was uh, a nationwide. This was when America rolled, people. This was the 60s. The dollar was king. King, I tell you. <laughs> and uh, in Germany, you know how strong Germany is now with the euro. Well, they had Deutschmarks back then, and they were no slouches. There was a miracle, and they were, everyone was working. They were building things. Their main currency, the Deutschmark, there were four of them in a dollar when I went over there in the 60s. A Deutschmark was a quarter, people. A quarter. So we didn't have a lot of money, but we or- they could organize these trips, tend st- send students over there. We had three weeks in Austria, three weeks in Germany, and we studied, again, the inverted quotes. We had German classes maybe three days a week. Most of our time was touring around and seeing cultural things right. and seeing Germany, you yeah. know? So that got me going, and uh, that got me going on travel, probably, which nothing I ever really thought about, though your grandmother had gone over to uh, 
Europe on her own in the 50s with a girlfriend. Really? So post-World War II? And yes. Talk it? about the dollar ruling and everything. She was over there in the heyday and was over there. And I knew that. I was only five or something when she came home. But I had a little present from Venice and a little oh. gondola. So maybe that got in the back of my head. But she went over there on her own, organized by wow. her and her, her cousin. And uh, so that might have gotten the back of my head. This was a well-organized thing. Well, but uh, it was right in the middle of my tennis progression, and I couldn't do much. I took my racket with me, which is unheard of, and I did rally balls against walls, but I couldn't really play much tennis over there. Yeah, yeah. It was an opportunity. It wasn't set up as a sporting thing. It was set up as a study thing and a, and a cultural thing. Right. And tennis was. It looked like at that time American culture wasn't European culture. Right. So I did get to play once on my trip over there. My brother, who was working for IBM, got a job with IBM in Europe in 1969 when I was over there and took time off. And he and his wife came to visit to visit me in Austria where I was. And he paid wow. for us to play tennis on European clay courts. No way. At the club in Austria where they hold the national championships of Austria still today. That was like a dream. Oh, I know. I did. It was be- I'd never been on a real <laughs> clay court before. The feet are going like this. Yeah. It's like you're playing on ball bearings, people. Right. It's, it's nasty. Super fast, too. But it's red. It's brick dust. And you would get, like, dirty. Didn't feel dirty. Didn't look dirty. It was yeah. like red. <laughs> yeah, nice red it was chic. Socks. It was oh, chic dirty. It was lovely. Brick-colored <laughs> socks. And your sneakers are all different type. It was a dusty, yeah, danky. No. Yeah. It was European red. It's class. Right. Had class. So I had to get to play over there once, and that was nice. It probably helped, even though I couldn't improve my game, and help build the... Inspiration and inspiration. all that. Yeah, and yeah. then the travel. Yeah. And I've been reading these magazines about the tour, traveling to Europe and yeah. everything, so fuel my imagination a little bit, I guess. And uh, I didn't have any money, so I never traveled again to, uh, overseas until after I'd spent some years doing tennis as a business after yeah. I graduated from college. So you so, got into teaching tennis, yes, right? Yes, teaching tennis because there was opportunity. Yeah, it was That's new. the only reason. Yep. I got my... I got my uh, my diploma here and said I can teach secondary education. And uh, I did my student teaching. I said, yeah, you got to dress up in a suit and a tie back in the day. Well, and all your this. style. I said, why would I want to do that when I can wear short pants and be out in the sunshine and make more money? <laughs> <laughs> why would I want to do that? Okay, diploma, go in the closet now. Right, right. <laughs> so I had some jobs. It took me a while to get a real job after school. I starved a little bit, but people are used to doing that right out of school. I uh, worked at an indoor building where I wasn't teaching tennis. I was just working to desk. Yeah. But I could play tennis after hours. Me and my buddies would go out there and we'd have our own tournaments out there. God knows. They, knock on wood, you don't know about that out there in Lancaster, but that's what we did. <laughs> and uh, and had a nice hot tub, and et cetera. But... Uh, yeah, I did that for a little while, then worked in the summer again with a better class of tennis uh, club and built up a resume yeah. a little bit, you know, and learned some stuff. And then that winter, winter of, ooh, 75, whew, I didn't have much money in the bank, and I was sharing a place with a three-bedroom apartment with three guys. It wasn't overcrowded or anything, but... One of them was doing student teaching. One of them was working a rehab center, sociologist. That's what he graduated as. 
uh, as in, and I wasn't doing much of anything. <laughs> I, was, I was a bum living <laughs> just on bumming out. Yeah, living on noodles and just didn't have ramen back then, guys. Uh, canned spaghetti. I was living in, so I had enough some money, and I was applying. I was applying to places, you know, to work full time. Nothing much was coming back, so. I did, however, in the spring, after a long winter of discontent, in the spring, I just happened to be home in Pennsylvania, in Percocet, and the phone rang. And in those days, we didn't have cell phones, kids. There was one phone in the home, and that's, you had a phone. If you gave out the number, you gave out your home phone. Where I lived in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we didn't, do we have a phone? Yeah, we had a phone, but I didn't give out that yeah. number. I was, didn't know how long I was going to be there <laughs> right, in that right. apartment. So I gave out the home phone with mom and dad. And I just had to be home. Phone goes ring, ring. Pick up the phone and say, yes, hello. I said, hello there. Is Scott Leatherman there? I said, yes, this is he. Oh, Mike. Oh, this is uh, Graham Mosley here from Nukes Tennis Ranch down in uh, New Braunfels, Texas, which I'd heard of, by the way, since John Newcomb is one of the best tennis players in the world. And I, I knew he had a tennis camp in Texas. I said, yes. <laughs> well, mate, uh, we got your resume, and uh, we think you'd be a good fit for us down here. And I listen, I said, ah, oh, now who the hell is this? Doing a prank yeah. call. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't have prank calls yet, but I said, that, that sounded like a prank call to me. His accent was Australian uh, was accent. real Australian accent, and it sounded too much Australian. So, no, mate, it's me. It's Grant Mosley. We really like to have you down here. And... Uh, you know, we think you fit right in. I said, uh, when? <laughs> well, mate, as soon as you can. We can use you now. This is like March and down Texas. That's starting in the tennis. You know, right. Tennessee Season, gets yeah. bloody hot by May already. I said, ah, uh, well, I guess I could get down there in a week or so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, right, that'd be fine. Now, here's my number. Just call me when you know exactly when, and uh, we'll have things all set for you, all right? Wow. So, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> so I, sort of I didn't even go, woohoo, that I can remember. I just said, oh, I think I've got a job in Texas. <laughs> now I've got, got to think about how to get all my shit settled and go drive down. I'd drive down. Didn't have any money to go any other way. But I had a job when I got there. It was room and board. Wow. Room and board, X amount of much per week, which sounded great to me. Didn't have to pay any money out, yeah. you know. Just did Dukem have other places, or was this like the headquarters? That was or? his headquarters. Okay. He actually lived there because he was still playing the circuit. This is 1976. He was still playing the circuit. That was one of the older ones. He might have been that time. He was he was thirty something, not okay. as old as Roger Federer, but he was getting there, and he didn't do much of that back then. Though he was the first wave of tennis players who were making money. Yeah, see, right. he was one of those, but. Out of the amateur days, he had won Wimbledon as an amateur in 1967. Had won as the last amateur. Wow. And when it came to pros, tennis at 68, I think he'd lost like maybe, maybe he made it to the quarterfinals. I'm not even sure. And he certainly wasn't seated very high. Yeah. Uh, he was he was, the, he was the ex-champion. And he might have got seated. I have to look this up, but... They only seated 16 players. It was 128 men. They only seated 16. I'm pretty sure he made the top 16. Yeah. But just 
only because he was the past champion. <laughs> and he didn't make it. I don't think as quarterfinals he was out. So, but he did win Wimbledon twice more as a professional yeah. later on. So, uh, you know, he was one of my idols. You know, that yeah, I'd played a lot of different places. This is probably the place that I would have most wanted to go. Right. Though I didn't know crap about Texas or about the camp or anything. But it was John freaking Newcomb, for God's sake. He's the best player ever. You know, I learned stuff from watching him play. I said, yeah. Did you meet him? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, he used to be there a lot. Yeah, That's awesome. Yeah, he used to be there a lot. That was his home base because, he, again, a lot of the business was still in America. Yeah, so he was right. basically, yeah, I worked for him, worked with him on the court. He got me to go places to do exhibitions and stuff because I was, I was a little bit older in that I was 22. No, wait, 67. I was 24. Right two years out of college. So, so I was a little bit older where a lot of the guys were maybe right out of college or they had help, summer help. Mm-hmm. So they were in college. So I was like 24. I was older and uh, I loved Australian culture and I got along with everybody. So I'd go places with him and the other guys and do exhibitions and this and that, set things up. And it just so happened that year in 1976, the bicentennial year, I was down there in Texas away from all the revelry up here in the Northeast, which I was a bit chuff about. But as I was down there, Newcomb and his doubles partner, Tony Roach, who was also one of the best tennis players at that time, also bought into the professional ranks at the same time as Newcomb, because I think they might have won the, the Wimbledon amateur doubles that last year, too. So they were both bought up in 68. The group was called the Handsome Eight. Huh. Handsome. Good name. Yes, they were all very (laughs) handsome. They were from Australia and all over. That was the Lamar Hunt group, I think. Yeah, it was the Lamar Hunt group, the Handsome Eight. So they were considering, or I guess they were already working on it, starting a summer camp in Australia based on the American summer camp, which is not a global phenomenon, as it turns out. It is an American phenomenon, sleepaway camp Mm. for X amount of weeks or whatever, doing a thing or doing generally all sorts of things. Doesn't happen other places. It happens in America. So them being having spent a lot of time here and knowing people who did it, decided that would be a good thing to do in Australia. Yeah. Because Australia they had camps again were neighborhood based. Maybe you'd you know, you'd give day camp type of thing like we think of. You'd go right. to a neighborhood and the one guy knew something about tennis and he'd have a little camp with eight kids and they'd be throwing hitting balls all over the damn place and they have to run laps or I don't know what they did but but this was a sleepaway camp a one week sleepaway camp and we thought well, well give this a try this they got some sponsorship it's you know big names if anyone's going to catch attention these two would and they were they were mates they were friends and that counts for a lot and they're both from Sydney Australia is the biggest town biggest city at the time and the camp they were going to have it in was in a university out in the country like uh, from Philadelphia, like Penn State, out okay. in the country. It's out in the country, not yeah, close to the city. Up. Yeah, you had to drive a few hours. And uh, so they got this country town, which just happened to be the hometown of the fellow who ran the tennis camp in Texas for Newcomb, Graham Mosley, who caught me on the phone wow. with a funny accent there. Just happened to be his hometown of, uh, uh, oh dear, what is it, out there in New South Wales, uh the university was a university in New England, and uh, a little 
little town was, oh my goodness, I lost the name of the town. Ah, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> Those Aussies will kill me, but we don't have too many Aussies in the podcast, I reckon. <laughs> uh, a couple. Yeah. I've, I've seen you a couple. You got some Aussies. Yeah, just a couple. Well, it's out there in New England, mate. It's out there <laughs> over the Blue Mountains, eh? Maybe and, one of them will uh, message me. <laughs> yeah, it's a university in New England, and uh, for some reason I can't remember the name right now, though I spent many happy hours. Yeah, uh, crack tube. Anyway. <laughs> oh, crack tube. Anyway. Having started that camp and him knowing, maybe by looking at my resume or maybe me mentioning it into his ear, that I had lots of summer camp experience right. in America, which no one in Australia had any idea about. He said, oh, Scotty, would you like to come to Australia this summer? Wow. We're having a tennis camp. He said, after, you know, I replaced my dentures in my mouth, I said, uh, oh, sure, digger. Yeah. Well, uh, but, you know, I don't have a whole lot of money. Oh, mate, we can't pay your way out there. But once you're there, we'll give you X so much per week. And right. room and board, just like here. I said, oh, right, off you go. Yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> so, as it turned out, it was $1,000 to get there and back Whew. in 1976 That's money. A lot then, with too. stagflation, people. <laughs> Look that one up. With stagflation, it's a poop load of money. But again, I was working for room and board, and I, all I spent is beer and. And silliness, so I had money in the bank, and a thousand dollars was a round trip well spent, and I had friends down there. So once I got there, again, maybe not room and board, but I had room and place to stay for nothing, and, yeah, and guides, you right. know, and people who show me about, and until I went to camp, and and then I was pretty much taken care of. And again, it was beer money. So how long did you do that? Well, I went there for the first camp. That was 76, 77. It was right over the New Year holiday. And those camps lasted three weeks. And I spent like two, at least two months in Australia you know, with friends and spending the money that I'd earned on tourism. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I, I had a good <laughs> time. in the land. You're there. Yeah. I was working three weeks and spent maybe six more weeks here. So in Texas, nothing much happens except rain and, and nastiness between uh, January and March. So I have so pretty much had three months. months. There. Okay, yeah, I, I pretty much took up the slack there. Otherwise, I'd be painting rooms back at the tennis camp in, in Texas. So, you know, I spent my ill-gotten gain and came back broke and happy and then started all over again in Texas now with the heat building. So it was summers in Australia and then summers in Texas wow. for a couple years. That was that was some hot years. But uh, 76, I did it every summer, uh, 76 to 82. Okay. 82 is the last summer. So every Australian summer, I'd go down there. And then when I came back to America, I worked in Texas for two years. And, and at that time, also worked for Newcomb in Vermont a little bit. We'd have a, like a month in Vermont, which was... Godsend because he started tennis camp up there. After Texas heat, Vermont was so nice. Oh, I bet uh, it was like dessert. It was so nice. I would have died four months in Texas, but three months was all right. And then, uh, and then I ended up with an Australian girlfriend, so we made our own circuit. We we did uh, maybe six months in Australia, and then overseas in Germany, wow. or United States, and then we worked in. We went to. England to see Wimbledon, and then we worked in Germany, and and then we came back to the United States, and then back in Australia. So we did our own little circuit for a year, two years, I guess we did that. So that was a bit of traveling again, all tennis oriented. I wouldn't have done any of it without tennis, basically. 
uh, and that provided the money as well as right. the reason for being there. But yeah. it was the engine and 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 the cause. And then uh, in that time when I was doing uh, Australia and back to Texas, Nuke had another idea. He had another. He had businesses all over in the Far East. He had a business group that was called one thing. It was called Nuke Plus Four. And he had a business group that was called Nuke Plus Two, and I forget what they did. But he had a business group in uh, in America that was, uh, I guess it was based, Texas was based in T-Bar-M, which was his first business. It was Nukem and uh, two Texas guys. It was Tut Parts and, and, uh, and Clarence Mabry, who were older guys from Texas, and they did this camp that I worked at originally. But Nuke had other jobs, and since he knew me, and again, I was a little bit older and could be trusted. Yeah. And uh, he said, uh, Scotty, uh, we're starting a new camp in the, in the Fiji Islands. And I said, Fiji Islands? I had to go back in my computer. I said, uh, Fiji. There was no Google back then, kids. No Google. So everything I knew was from reading the encyclopedia or listening in class when most people were sleeping. Right. But I knew the Fiji <laughs> Islands, I knew it was in the South Pacific, and that was more obvious because Nukem was doing it. it. had to be over in the Far East if it wasn't Europe. And uh, he was starting a tennis camp there with some partners, and he had an American partner who had, well, originally made money from building, ooh, what was it? Shopping malls in California in the 60s. Wow. Which was a boom business, a I'll tell maker. you. Jeez. It was a boom business. So he made money, and he was he had some business dealings, his fellow Dennis, in Australia. And he flew over to Australia to talk some deals, probably for Australian shopping malls. I don't know if they're ready for them <laughs> in the early 70s. But as he came back, the planes didn't, didn't have 747s yet. They didn't fly right across the Pacific. The planes all stopped in Fiji as a refueling spot and stopped in Hawaii. That was about as far as they could safely go. So Dennis was coming from Sydney. First stop was in Fiji. There was a mechanical problem on the plane. He couldn't carry on till the next day. There was only one plane in and one plane out. So they had put him up on a hotel. Did some exploring? Yes. Well, he said, he went to the cab driver and said, he was a big California, big shot American. He said, take me the best hotel you got around here. <laughs> so, yeah, right, bosso. The Indian fellow clamped down the door and boom, off he went. And his old, it was a paved road, but soon the paved road gave way to gravel and uh Airport was far behind him. Dennis is thinking, where am I going? Where am I going? <laughs> I'm going to be kidnapped or killed out here. I don't know this guy. And where the hell? As the bumpity road carried on, and he's chattering away with the Indian fellow and can understand half of what he's saying. He's getting very concerned, but there's nothing much he can do about it now. The car comes up to the top of a hill. And down below, it's moonlight now. Down below, there's a beautiful lagoon. And it's lit by a few, a few lights. And there's a building down there. It just shines off the water. And it's called the Fijian. And it was built by the people from Pan Am back in the 60, early 60s. Because the Pan Am people had blazed all those trails across the Pacific with like clipper boats and everything. Wow. Well, they needed a, a, a good place to stay. Fiji was a bit of a black backwater. It was a, it was a British colony big for sugar cane. Uh, but 
wasn't involved in World War II except as a supply base. It was too far out right. from where the Japanese were attacking. But, you know, we had, had some American influence there that helped build things up, you know, as we do. We had to build a big airfield there. That became the International Airport. I found out later that they had one paving machine. This is one. asphalt. One, one asphalt paving machine in the entire country. It was owned wow. by the government. And it was a leftover from World War II. Wow. That the Seabees had left them by the bequeath of the U.S. government. So, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a backwater Fiji, but beautiful place. And you're talking tropical paradise. This is what you'd see. And this is what Dennis saw. Dennis McElrath, as he came over, was worried about being killed or, or scalped or whatever. Here's this beautiful lagoon with right. this nice little building. He said, oh. Well, I guess that was worth the trip. And he down there, and he found out that's the only place that's worthwhile in the whole damn side of the country. The capital's on the other end of the island. And it was about, with the bad roads, maybe it was an hour from the airport. Well, him being a you know, real estate guy said, i got to invest here. Well, i got to do better than that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, an yeah. hour from the airport. This is beautiful, but it's 1960s, all right? Yeah, I can yeah. do better. I can build a place, get it close to the airport. We got people coming in. They stay and they see how gorgeous this place is. Yeah, I can do this. So from this, he cancels his flight. He's going to go out a little bit later. He meets up with some people, ends up being a real estate guy. He makes a deal. Like someone else we know. Of course. He was a deal maker. <laughs> this is Dennis. He's a deal maker from California. He made a deal with the locals for this land that was basically a mangrove swamp. Uh-huh. It was a little island of its own, but not an island. That, I mean, it was the big island of Fiji is about as big as the biggest island in Hawaii. And the airport's on the eastern side of the island. The capital's on the western side of the island. There's, there's uh, mountains in the middle. And uh, there's a wet side and a dry side. Well, the airport just happens to be, by no coincidence, on the dry side. And the capital happens to be on the wet side by bad luck because that's where the Fijians had their capital before the Brits moved in. So dry side, airport, dry side, this nice hotel, an hour's drive away. Dry side, this little Denarau Island that Dennis found that's separated from the main island by about 100 feet of murky water. Okay. And it's basically a mangrove swamp, which means you don't have nice white beaches. You have mangrove trees that are sort of muddy and get into a lagoon somewhere. Yeah. But an island that he could use and build on and the local people could get a percentage of and what have you. It all goes to the local Tui. So he does his deal, builds this place. Gorgeous. I mean, he's a partner. He gets someone else, I guess, other people to to come in. But he's the main doer and shaker and the main partner. Builds this place with the regent uh, group. And the regent at the time was a very high-class uh, hotel chain. And up in New York City, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, they had them. I mean, it was mostly Far East, Australia, Sydney, and Melbourne, I think, had a region at one time. They were high-class places. Yeah. But this is a real resort. They didn't have those. They're often downtown and classy places to stay. Dennis makes a deal with these guys. So it's a regent of Fiji. Nukem somehow meets this American guy, gets their heads together, Guys from California, remember, we need a tennis. We need some more tennis here. Now, Dennis played a little bit of tennis, not well. But when he put the hotel in, he needed, you know, amusements. Yeah. 
he put down an area that had grass courts on it. Wow. Now, Fiji being a tropical place, you can imagine, grew some pretty nice grass. It's a good grass. Yeah. He stole, with the money, the groundskeeper at the local uh, lawn tennis club in Nandy. <laughs> and oh, wow. Got him, paid him probably triple his salary, which is still a pittance, to be the groundskeeper on a really nice place instead of a shitty old right. post-colonial joint that was falling apart. So by by Drew was a man and by knew his grass, even though the other place had bad grass, this place had the good grass, did a little right. research, and by took care of this grass like his baby. So we had an area uh, that was big enough for three courts, but you couldn't use... I mean, three and three. You couldn't use three and three. You'd have to use two and two because grass courts, you got to move them around because of the wear pattern. So they they had like four really nice grass courts. But they're real grass. You can't put lights on them. So they're only good for the daytime. And even though this is the dry side of the island, it has a rainy season. Clouds come over the hills. They've dropped all their most of their moisture on the wet side of the island. They come over the hills, come down the hills towards Denarau Island, and they have just enough water left in them for about a 15-minute fierce shower and then move off to sea. So during the rainy season, almost every afternoon, there'll be a fierce shower of 10, 15 minutes. Courts in the afternoon, about 3 o'clock, courts are totally soaked. It was very hot and very humid. Courts would not dry even though it had some tropical breezes, would not dry till about the next day at 1 o'clock where it was frighteningly hot and humid. Oh, and geez. maybe if you were really desperate to play tennis, you could play for an hour and a half or so before the next rain shower comes back down. So this grass court was not the best. It was beautiful and it was perfect for the setting, but it was not a resort-type thing. Yeah. You couldn't. So Newcomb knew that when he got into the deal, and part of the deal was Newcomb's Tennis Camp South Pacific Tennis Resort would have some improved courts with lights, modern lights. And that was part of the deal. So me being the oldest one, when he more or less already had this deal struck up, he had Dennis come to Texas. He came up to me one day, say, Scotty, I'd like to meet this bloke here. He's one of your countrymen there, Dennis McElrath. He's from California. I'm business with him in the Fiji Islands. I said, I'm thinking, Fiji, okay, I sort of know where that is. Oh, how you doing, mate? How you doing? I said, yeah, well... We're thinking about this uh, tennis ranch down there, and, and uh, I'm thinking you'd be the bloke to run it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, this is 1979. I'm like 26 by that time. 27. 27. Yeah, 27. I've been a tennis coach. I never run a goddamn thing and not even a popcorn stand or a lemonade <laughs> stand when I was a kid. I wasn't interested in that. But I was going to have to be not just a pro, but a manager of this place. And as they explained to me, find out a way to get real courts in this place. Right. That only had, which I loved, long tennis courts, but only had tennis courts that were good for eight, eight months a year. You know, so, okay. Yeah, I could do that. That sounds fine. You know, done with Texas by now. It's in the, It's now the the third or fourth summer of 100-degree heat coming yeah. on, and he came up to me at a very, oh, a very important time. Yeah, you're ripe to get out. Yeah, right before the heat came, he came to me <laughs> and talked about it in May. So it was starting to get hot, and the kids were starting to come, and oh, my God, I said, I can't do this again. So, so yes, I said, yes, let's do that. And we talked a little bit of money and sounded fine with me, room and board. Yep. 
And they pay for my way to get there this time. I wasn't like Australia. They pay for me to get there. And I had vacation. And I could go down to Australia because it was the rainy season right. in Fiji. I could go down to Australia and still do what I did. How far is from Australia again? <coughs> if you're on your flight, you know, be like New York to Bahamas or something like okay. that. Yeah, maybe a little more. Maybe New York, Puerto Rico. It might be two hours, something like that. Mm, okay. Two hours and a bit to Sydney. And uh, so, yeah, it was like a vacation spot for Aussies and New Zealanders. It was about the same. Right. And it was relatively cheap. So uh, it was a big spot. You know, not many Americans, not many North Americans come through there. It was yeah. not number one. Tahiti, yes, it's out of the way. Of course, they're French and very stuck up. Our people are very friendly and they speak English. So it was a natural play to for Canadians and Americans to go to Fiji, but they didn't really promote. They didn't have a lot of money. Right. And again, they were hoping maybe this would help open it up with the tennis boom and all. Like the economy there. Yes. It's like, what was up. the history like in Fiji? Like for people who don't know, like kind of like in this era, like kind of like as, as it's being industrialized and Fiji, cultures are moving on. Fiji had very odd sort of colonial backdrop. Mm-hmm. Fiji was a, a port... Uh, for the whalers back in the 18th or 19th century, 18th too, but the whalers come through for supplies, and uh, uh, they were pretty rough. Those Fijians, they're uh, Melanesians, uh, which think think of East Africans basically, not Polynesians. Yeah, uh, light skin. These are these are I, I would say milk chocolate colored consistently, not like America where. Our American, African-Americans came from all different places and mixed with all different types of people. No, in Fiji, they're Fijians. Then they pretty much all milk chocolate and all got the kinky hair and not what you expect for South Pacifics. But this is a big part of South Pacific. I mean, from New Guinea to uh, Micronesia is a mix, but Melanesia is what they call that area. And and, uh, you say, where do these guys come from? That's a hell of a boat ride from East Africa, but right. they look exactly like what what you'd expect, you know, from watching Tarzan movies and not Fijians, but Africans. And and yet that's that's the way it is. Culture's been going on forever. They can't figure out exactly when they got that's there. So interesting. So it's, no one really does no one know? Or? They don't know exactly. You know, they have again, you have like uh, stories because Fijian is not a written culture, it's a verbal culture, mm-hmm. and some of that stuff is written down from the old days, and there's stories about the boats, you know, coming out, and the boats fun in the place. But, you know, on the timeline, it's generational, you know. Yeah. Oh, grand- grandfather 15 times ago came here. Right. What? No when? idea. No. Like, like, as far as, like, a history book's concerned, there's yeah. no way to track it's, it. It's a little tougher. I'm sure nowadays with, uh, no, this is the 70s I'm talking about. So nowadays with DNA and whatnot, I'm sure that, and they are zeroing in on where they, where they came from, these people. And they might even be related, if I remember right. They could be way back related to the Aboriginal people of Australia, which okay. look more, little more African than Tahitian. You yeah. know, so it, it could go back that far. I forget now. I, I, things I read, some bits stick in my head, and some don't. But in that day, all I had was the Encyclopedia Britannica. Right. So when I had accepted this job, I had to gather up all my stuff in Texas and and. Take it back to Pennsylvania because I didn't need a car. I had to take my car back. My brother-in-law, one of my brother-in-laws bought it. Take all my gear back to Pennsylvania. Let it set there and then, you know, set up for the trip there. So we had Encyclopedia Britannica. Take out Fiji. Reading a thing on that. Wasn't a whole lot. Wasn't a whole lot to read. But I read what I could. Got a little bit of background. And that was the most I knew before I... 
I had stopped in Fiji on my first trip to Australia. It was, again, I didn't have a 747. A Canadian Pacific Airline was an old airline. It was uh, it was the cheapest way to get there. Which right. I, so it flew out of uh, San Francisco to Hawaii, Hawaii to Fiji, Fiji to Sydney. So I made two stops. And I got in Fiji. All I knew about Fiji was I got there about 6 in the morning. This was in December, January. Got out of the air-conditioned plane, boom, hit with this wall of freaking humidity. humidity, yeah. It just uh, cut my way through with my fingernails, and the sun was just rising. There was a sunrise. It was so six-ish in the morning. I didn't know with my my wristwatch what freaking time it was, but it was sunrise, and it was this hot already. Wow. After the air-conditioning, it was very hot. And I struggled into the... Uh, you had time for them to refuel and clean the plane, so you got out and you go duty free or whatever, even at six in the morning. So I, I went to the terminal. No air conditioning in the terminal. Oh jeez! It was just as hot as outside and no breeze. So I I didn't need any. I guess I didn't get any duty free. I I went outside and stood where I could catch an occasional. A breeze because we we're not that far from the water, and that's all I remember from so Fiji. You just knew it was humid. <laughs> Get me back in the freaking plane where the air conditioning is, please. So that's all I knew from Fiji, and it was beautiful. It was pretty. There's a lovely sunrise. There was palm trees, and yeah, it looked nice. There was water. I could hear the crashing waves. That's all I knew, except my Encyclopedia Britannica, which did not help me, did not elucidate things, and a few stories maybe that little bit that Dennis mentioned about Fiji. So I took the plane. I knew less about, probably less about Fiji than Neil Armstrong knew about the moon when he went there. <laughs> I'm sure he knew a shitload more about the moon than I knew about Fiji. But, hey, I knew there's oxygen there and it was green and you had a nice sun, sunrise. <laughs> ah, and they got green grass courts. Hell, what could go wrong? So I'd take myself, boom, flying to Fiji. And... uh Beautiful hotel. I mean, I'd stayed in some nice places. I'd seen some rich people's joints. It's a very nice hotel. Beautiful grounds. It was, it was nice. They had a little nine-hole pitch-and-putt golf course that wasn't well-maintained. I think the swamp was sort of reclaiming it. But they had the grass courts, and it was it was not rainy season. It was dry season. They were beautifully manicured. The color was lovely. And the, the fencing was like, it was not chain link. It was like, oh, it was like knitting from the, from, oh, from the fishing, the fishermen. It, it threw us at their nets so we could put that down to keep the ball from flying out. And it was the, it was a grass shack was my pro shop. <laughs> it was a lean-to, <laughs> actually. A lean-to with a, with a little section cordoned off with a desk. And uh, so the grass shack was my was my office, and I had a, a lovely. I stayed in the in the hotel. That was where I stayed, my room and board. And uh, it wasn't too far; just a short little walk to tennis courts. And there I was, three meals a day provided by the hotel. That was part of my deal. And uh, did I have a, a an alcohol tab? I don't think I had an alcohol tab. I had to pay for my own alcohol. Damn them! But anyhow. You Couldn't be that, that good. Yeah. Damn, I knew I left something out. I need a lawyer for my contract. I only had me. <laughs> so I was missing something, but that was all. And uh, I had a, 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 a 
spunky little girl, uh, a gal that they, it wasn't a girl, she was older than me, a gal who was from there, a New Zealander who had, who had lived in Fiji and gone away to school and come back and had a family. Robin, she was my assistant. So my girl, Robin, and my girl, Robin, and I, we just, you know, started to get programs, you know, to make up ideas and what kind of group lessons we could have, what it would cost, right. the whole thing. And we we're also thinking about what are we going to do about an office? We need something to, you know, if we're going to sell things, we need something. I need something that's covered, not just a grass shack. A lean to office. Yeah, yeah. sometimes the uh, rain comes sideways and all this stuff. So, and we also started to think about what kind of courts we're going to build. That's when I found out that there was only one asphalt machine in the entire country of Fiji owned by the government. From World War II. Yes, and it was booked <laughs> from now till oblivion. So I was not going to get asphalt courts like we have in America. That was not going to happen. <laughs> so I didn't know where I was going to go after that. But eventually, you know, Providence took a hand. Well, uh, that first year, I was uh, first few months, I was pretty disoriented. You know, I was meeting people all the time and trying to remember their names and uh, what they were. And I didn't have an automobile. I didn't have any way to get around. This was a very lovely place, but uh, there's no way to get off the island, right. <laughs> off our little island into the bigger island, which had God knows very few distractions, but did have a downtown area where you could buy things. And they had a movie who played basically Hindi movies, but once in a while would have an English or, or, or a European movie dubbed into English. And I could, but I couldn't get there. That's Robin took me and then I'd have to hitchhike my way back, right. which I did not like the idea of. It gets very dark in the tropics when there's no, there's no lights no, anywhere. There's no lights around. It's very dark. <laughs> it's even darker than Texas. What's the sky like? Do you dark. see the Milky Way? Oh yeah. Well, oh. Texas you could too. Wow. You get out in the middle. It was still pretty underdeveloped. Nowadays they tell me New Braunfels is a pretty, it's more built up more almost like a, a sleeping community for San Antonio and Austin. It's sort of between the two. But it was, I'd never seen the Milky Way like in Texas. You yeah. got out you got out from the tennis courts and you just lay down and say, fuck, what's that? Right. Yeah, a cloud. Of, it's a clear sky day. What the? That's stars for Christ's sake. It's just That's a cloud. I've never seen it. Pennsylvania, never really seen that. So that was interesting. Yeah, and Fiji was totally different sky now. Southern Cross and not the, so yeah, it was a different kind of cloud. But whew, Clear and beautiful, so it was. It was. It was a very nice place, and the people were lovely. And uh, they had a a club of locals that would use the place, and all the locals were merchants, and all the locals were Indian, East Indian, uh, out of the subcontinent, India. Turns out that the English, when they, uh, we could call it, bequeathed. The Fiji Islands by the 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 uh, paramount chief of Fiji. It was about 1870, and they were bequeathed by the paramount chief the islands of Fiji because the Fijians had created a debt with a country called the United States of America by having an altercation with one of their whaling ships who had done probably some cultural and delicate things and riled up the natives and the natives hence burned the American <laughs> wow. it wasn't an embassy, it wouldn't have had an embassy, it would have had a uh 
the consulate. <laughs> they burned the American consulate. And America was holding them at ransom for $40,000. Wow. The country. Just who the had, whole country. Yes. Country because the TUI, I mean, the uh, Paramount chief uh, is, he wasn't actually the chief of the whole country. Yeah, how does that work? Because like, there are multiple tribal there identities. Are, and, there and, are. Now, he was the strongest. Like what's the population like there? Uh, well, at that time, of course, it was all Fijian. And there was, you know, there were tribal groups around, and they were pretty fierce. Fijians were uh, known as cannibals across the the, uh, the Pacific, and pretty fierce. And they were larger than normal. They said they had an African, you know, yeah. look to them, which was a little odd for the sailors because it's not the normal thing in the Pacific. But they're also bigger. I mean, the Fijians are broad. They're well-shaped. And they were a little taller than average, you yeah. know, not what you'd think. And the women were, too. <laughs> they were solid, solidly built and not unattractive and just different. So yeah. these guys were warriors. You could tell by the look of them, you know. Well, warriors, the warfare there was small scale, you know, tribe to tribe. And part of the warfare turns out that cannibalism became a ritual part of it. You wouldn't have to kill Tons of people in the warfare, but if you're taken captive or wounded or whatever, you might end up in the dinner plate. Yeah, and <laughs> it's so insane. Your rank in the in in the tribe that won would determine which parts you were wow. entitled to as well. Now, the brain was big. They had picks for brains. They had these three three thing pick that you go take little bits out of the brain. That was pretty good. The naughty bits down there were. Or delicacy. Also prized. Yes. So the chief, I think, pretty, oh, I had big juju, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, so the chief, I think, would get the naughty bits and maybe he'd give a bit to you if you did a good job out there. Wow. The war club. I mean, these guys were, were wielding Stone Age weapons. Yeah. When the Americans and the Brits and everybody had their had their black powder, these guys were, you know, I wouldn't have seen the war clubs. I mean, we're pretty fierce. These are big dudes, big old piece of solid wood with a chunk a big round ball of, of granite or something yeah, in there and a, yeah. and a flint point out the other end. So I whop you over the head and stab or cut your throat <laughs> with the other piece. So the British had essentially bought their ransom? They, the Tuian, I mean the king, the paramount chief, uh, chief of Tui is like a duke, but he was a paramount chief. He was the head guy. He had pretty much, you know, the Americans threatened to, you know, lace like torch the whole place with their oh, with their boats, you know, it's gunboat diplomacy. You give us some money, motherfucker, we're gonna burn your ass down. So I said, I don't have any money. I'll find out a way to do it. So supposedly the Fijian chief sent a delegation to England. Now, they had islands around the air, Samoa's, I guess, uh, Solomon's in those times. All over. They yeah. had little bits and pieces around there, and Fijian was a little too fierce. They didn't, didn't mess with them. So sent a delegation. To Queen Victoria in like the 1850s or something, 60s, I guess, after her husband died, I reckon, 60s. And Queen Victoria was, listened, and I said, uh, we're not, we are not interested at this time in this proposition. Thank you very much. Huh. Turned down the colony, handed to her. They, they couldn't find a way. They weren't thinking of a way to, to make it pay. Again, it was another of a similar colony, and they were. It was later 
colonialism. So it wasn't just grabbing things to grab them now. How do you make this pay? How do you make this property pay its way? This is on the other side of the freaking world. How do we get our money out of this? Right. What, what kind of investment Yeah, is I this? can't just be throwing money at you, paying off these Americans. How am I going to make more money off of you? So the queen was, you know, said, no, thank you. And, you know, well, he had no other ideas. You know, no, he wasn't going to go to the French. They were out there. And they sent another delegation a few years later, still Queen Victoria, but different prime minister and what have you. Maybe 10 years later, America's been... Threaten them for 10 years or more to give us our money. We have you. Went back and the ideas had changed a little bit. Okay. Or they'd found a paying crop and it was sugarcane. Mm. And the Caribbean had sort of wore itself out. That was original sugarcane came from there. It's a slave culture down that way. Well, they banned slavery and the sugarcane plantations in the Caribbean probably weren't producing what they what they yeah. would. So, and they had a colony in India that would soak up all sorts of of foodstuffs that they might need to supply. And this was closer to there. I don't know whether they're thinking the sugarcane to Britain or sugarcane to Australia, to India, some of the other colonies. Sugar needed them too, and without slavery, well. This place has the right climate for sugarcane. We could grow it here. We could make some money. Let's do it. All right, huh. King, you're on. They made the deal. $40,000. Americans said, thank you very much. I'm out. Boom. Got their money and ran. And the Brits came over with their delegation, took over. They found out the Fijians are very, uh, very uh, communal. All right, everything's owned by the group, and work is done, and 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 everyone benefits from that work. But actually, working for someone else to make them money and to give you a little bit of it, not in and of their culture at all. Right. So the Brits would say, "Here, good my good man, we need you to work in the fields." If she's looking to say, "Fuck you, knocking the yeah, head with my work club," you know? right? It's like, and it's totally different. Yeah, totally different understanding. That's my of, land. Yeah. I got to be working for you in my land. What are you talking about? Talk to my Tui. He'll tell you what to what to go. And, and like, what was that even like, like diplomatically with the Tui? Because like, the, 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 were there multiple Tuis? Like, oh, how did this work? Tuis and uh, they were like. Again, sort of like a duke. Yeah. So my Tui, Tui and Nandi uh, had had made the deal with Dennis for this little island, uh-huh. and and there was Tui's down where that other, that original Pan Pan American resort was. There was another Tui uh, that was uh, down by the really Sika Sika no Sika. Oh, I can't remember. <gasps> Honey, there was a <laughs> there was another Tui down there, and there's course there was the king. Would uh, run more the um, the the wet side of the island. Okay, but there was Tui's up in uh, La Toca, which was uh, a little further north. There was a Tui up Mba, Tui Mba, who I did run into later, and Tui Mba turns out had the northern part of the of the big island, and he was not genetically of the same stuff. As the Paramount King and these other Tuis. Oh, interesting. It turns out that this Tui Mba happened to be a Tongue. He was of Tongan origin. The Tongans was another little set of islands, not too far from Fiji. Same type of people, probably even fiercer than the Fijians. Wow. And they had at some point decided to raid the Fijians over many years. 
and they had been successful enough to take over maybe a quarter of, the, of, this, wow. country, of this little island. Uh, the Tongans ran the upper part of the island, and they'd been intermixed with the Fijians over the years. So, I mean, they they were still genetically, you know, where they thought of themselves as different. Did they look much different? Yeah. No. Yeah, didn't look the same. Didn't look, didn't look much different at all. Uh, but at Tonga, the king of Tonga, they still have their king. To this day? Yes. Wow. And Never they're independent. Tonga. Independent. Never got colonized Tonga. Uh, a protectorate of some sort. I think with the British, they worked something out. But they said, yeah, no, we've had enough of these guys. Fijians are bad enough. I think we'll leave these Tongans alone. And the Tongans, I guess, just made their way without any bullshit. You know, <laughs> where they, they played the French off against the British. I don't know, but they're independent. That's and their wild. king was running things. How, how big is the population? Not, not that big. Not that big. It's just a couple of It's less... Less than Fiji, I think. I mean, Fiji, when I was there, total population. It's 300 islands. Now, the islands are about, you know, an island could be as big as this building. Or, you know, uh, Vitulevu, which was the island I was on, called the big island in Fiji and Vitulevu. That was big as the biggest Hawaiian island. And oh, wow. Vanua Levu, what was the second one? Vanua Levu was more stretched out, looking like about Long Island size. So the tribes could range from what, like 100 people to a couple thousand people yeah. or something yeah. like that? It depends on the topography, I okay. guess, how they spread out or, or how much, you know, land was arable and stuff as to how well they, you know, spread. But those 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 fighting Tongans, they hit the top part. So the Tui, Tui and Ba was up there. And... He knew, you know, he was he didn't have enough strength to say F you to the to the king, you yeah. know. Takumbao. I think that was the king, King Takumbao. So he couldn't say F you, but he said, you know, all right, you're my king, but leave me the fuck alone. Yeah. Right? He was basically <laughs> up there taking care of business by himself over all these years, you know. And they did pretty much leave him alone. And Ba had agricultural land, had some mountains. So I guess they had a little bit of everything. It wasn't I guess it wasn't the richest section of the country but they might have had they might have had the gold mines up there i went to visit the gold mines once that was one of their money makers their biggest money maker was sugarcane their second traditional money maker was a coconuts now not the coconut meat the coconut outside so made gunpowder with that Wow. You needed that what? for gunpowder. Yes. So Britain had How did these that work? South Amer- South uh, Pacific countries that for World War One, World War Two, well, World War Two, they sort of cut off. But World War One, they had all the, that was an important part for the gunpowder. I forget. And not black powder, not in the old days, but this the new smokeless powder. That was part of that coconut was was important. It was, was it like was it unique to that area or no no I mean it's, it's just, just coconuts in yeah general. if you could grow coconuts in Malaysia which okay. it did that's they, interesting yeah it was it was something with the husk or with the with the outside of the coconut not the meat you know, okay. not the the milk like we drink nowadays coconut milk good for you yeah no fuck that. I mean <laughs> I mean we drank it the boy showed me how to open up a coconut and that was lovely you know drank that real coconut milk but but no the Brits needed it for the gunpowder so okay. so fiji and they were still making money off of that in the day but they also had a gold mine and it was probably just one but i mean fiji islands are all volcanic islands and that's where the gold comes up through you right. know when you got old volcanoes so they also had some new volcanoes but there's a uh, fatu 
Vatukola. Uh, Vatukola was a gold mine. I went up there to visit visit once because uh, some guys had talked about it. Some of the uh, some of the fellows who left over from the colonial days. Now I was there. Got there in 1978. Fiji had only got their independence in 1970. They were only, That's only wild. eight years independent. Dennis from Brit- from yeah, Great from Britain. Britain yeah, from okay. Britain. Yeah, and more or less forced out. Off you go. We're getting rid of our colonies now. Right, you're on your own. <laughs> I mean, it was again like they came in. We sort of please take us. Uh, we yeah, went. I think they sort of you know really we got to go now. You know, we sort of like it here now. Nah, oh, right, off you go. No, so they still had they're still Commonwealth country where they have a you know uh, uh, the head of state. You know, they have the king, they have the president, they have the parliament and all that. But they still have a royal representative, which right. technically represents the queen. And if there's you know uh, a question that's constitutional. That guy might have the final state because he's representing the queen. Interesting. Yeah. So Commonwealth is like that. And they, they've had some problems with that. But anyway, that was like eight years before I got there. So it was a very new independent country. And uh, and it turns out, genetically speaking, by the time I got there, as opposed to when they were independent, when they first became a colony and it was only Fijians, yeah. that sugarcane thing. The Fijians said, fuck you, I ain't doing that, boss. Well, they didn't have to worry about that because they had a whole subcontinent of India to get workers from. Mm. So like a lot of Indian immigrants. They set up an indentured labor system just like like America was started with indentured labor. It wasn't free labor. It was indentured. Get their asses over here and then work for seven years like a dog and then you're free. Yeah. And that's how slavery started here too in English. There was no tradition of English slavery. That was Spain and France and those guys. English didn't have it in their law. So when the first black slaves were bought off the boats, either Dutch or, or, or Spanish boats at Jamestown, those blacks were indentured servants, just like the Irishmen or the uh, the poor whites they brought over. Exactly right. the same. It was seven years, indentured servitude. You were entitled at the end of that seven years, plot of land, uh, maybe a suit of clothes, blah, blah. And they were responsible for your food and board while you were doing the work. Whatever they told you to do, that's what right. you did. But the black slaves, those that first batch, the ones that lived, they got land and they got sent off just like the white fellas and the new ones came in. Yeah. And it was like that in Jamestown for like a, till, I don't know if I'm like, ooh, 1620 till about 166, no, 16, I don't know, about 30 years or something. And one of the original black slaves, Mr. Johnson, he had his own plantation out in the bush and he was getting people in to work for him, indentured serv- servants, white and black. He had a black fellow who had finished his seven years and said, Mr. Mr. Johnson, you know, I'm due to get my suit of clothes in my land. He said, no, man, you belong to me. Wow. He said, why, Mr. Johnson? But you, you told me. He said, no, 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 you belong to me until I say you don't. And he said, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I hear tell that's not right. You know? It's like that slippery slope <laughs> yes. of just what. <laughs> and this kid, this guy, this indentured servant, this black indentured servant, took this black plantation owner to court. And the court like, mulled over and said, I mean, these are all landowners themselves running the courts. He said, huh, huh, he says he don't, He says he owns this guy until he doesn't. That would be really good for my plantation, too. Hmm, maybe no president in law, but, oh, fuck that. You belong to him. So <laughs> that's Mr. Johnson got to keep this dude. 
And that was a precedent set. Was there, were there multiple cases of that? Or is that like a famous case? That was case supposed to be the of, first one in Virginia. Wow. That, like, that's unbelievable. spread out. So, so it all it, started from that. Yeah, it did not spread, funnily enough, to the white population. <laughs> but even that damned Irishman, it wasn't worth a shit. Now they can let him go after seven years. But now they brought in the black indentured. Well, in Fiji, all that was ancient history. And they made contracts with these Indian peoples. And seven years, they called the Gurmet. It was the Gurmet uh, population. And they said, look, after seven years, you can, or five years, I forget, it was different, but you'll have your room and board while you're there. You work for us. You'll get paid. And at the end of that time, if you want to come home, come home with your money, you'll be a big man. You can buy your own land, marry the woman you want. Everything will be Jake. Say, yeah, boss, I'll sign on the dotted line. You know, there's no hope yeah. back, back home maybe to get that. Well, of course, they're indentured labor. They go. They get hauled over to Fiji. They're working like dogs in the fields. They're getting a place to stay. They're getting something to eat, to drink. But they're not getting paid much. And what they get paid goes to the company store, just like in America. Coal miners. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Coal miners. <laughs> goes to the company store. You get paid in script. Oh, you get $10 in script that's only good at the company store. Right. So the boss is making your labor, and he's making your money back on on that shit. So when did this start? This is the government labor. It was soon after the colony started, so 1870s. Okay. The government labor was started. So was it the parliament, or did they go to India to outsource this? Oh, this is all the Brits. This is all the Brits. Yeah, Fijians had nothing to to say about nothing anymore. But, But, again, enlightened uh, colonialism, since it was late in Victorian, they didn't just steal the land like they used to in the old days, like in America and Canada. They already developed a system of native trust land. Native trust land meant that since, and especially in Fiji, I, I presume since I don't think it had anything to do with it, it was probably a, already a, an idea that they had and it had used in other places. But being a communal society, it made sense. This land is entrusted to the group, to the tribe, to the king, to the Tui. It's belonged to the people. So you can't sell it. Yeah. Now, it's the same way it was in North America. They didn't give it a good goddamn. They just took it. You know, oh, they wrote the treaty and it handed it off and it wasn't, wasn't good for anything after that. You know, right. but, but they wrote these things. This is, this is the way it was. We learned from our mistakes. Uh, and uh, how much? 20, not 90. I think 90% of the land in Fiji was declared native trust land. Couldn't wow. be sold. Or bought. That's could, impressive. Could not be bought or sold. Could be rented. Could be rented. Okay. And an imperial lease is 99 years. <laughs> That's how they got Hong Kong. That was an imperial lease to the Chinese. They didn't buy Hong Kong even then. They had an imperial lease. 99 years. That's why they, they left in 97. Technically, that was the contract. Jeez. And it came to a time where they, mm, yeah, I guess we got to honor the contract. And Hong Kong was probably... Not worth much to Britain anymore with China looming. So they left, trying to make a deal. There's still sort of a deal. So Fiji had their native trust land. The Indians, when they finished working, they couldn't get any land. There was no land to get. They could get 
maybe they get an imperial lease, but those imperial leases are for the white folk. They weren't for these Indian buggers. You know, get to hell home. We'll get some more of you. Yeah. Those more Indians. You know, always more Indians. We got some more of you. So they wanted to send them home, but they lost too much face. They were gone for five years, seven years, whatever it was. No money in their kit now. They're going to get their. They're going to get their way home. They're going to come home with totally nothing. disgraced with yeah. nothing. Yeah. <laughs> they said all this work. Oh, jeez. So most of them made a sensible dis- decision. They were young. They they knew this area. Now they'd worked it. They knew what the work was like. They knew what the chances were. They knew what it was like back home. Said, well, we're going to stay, boss. You know, we'll stay. We'll work on this, like tenant farmers. So they got deals that were like tenant farming, like in the South, where the slaves didn't leave, but they didn't have very good deals either. They were farming, doing yeah. the same job, and getting a little bit, little bit out of it if they were lucky. So that's what the the Germans they stayed as tenant farmers, and then the Brits were responsible for bringing some women over, so you could have your mail order brides or whatever. So they. Being from the Indian subcontinent, there were enough women brought over that they, as I undelicately would phrase it usually, is they bred like rabbits. So the the population of Fijians in Fiji probably hadn't moved a whole lot uh, in 100 years. And when I was there... I think the total population was about 650,000 in the whole country. And the Indians had about half the population. Wow. Half the, starting from zero in 1870. That's crazy. To 1978. Let's say 100 years. Because they did have the 100-year celebration when I was there. Yeah, they had the Gurmit celebration in 1979 probably. So it was 100 years had taken over half the population. Now, Fijians were not very happy about that. They could get along with these Indian fellows. The Indian fellows were, I mean, they could start shops. And all my my club people were shop owners. They all owned shops, and and they played tennis in their spare time. They were nice fellows, and I could get discounts at their shops and all that. They all had the same stuff, but, I mean, some had a little more jewelry, some had a little more sporting goods, some had a little more electronic goods, so I, I could... Mix and match. I try to spend money with all of them to be happy. But th- that's one thing they could do. Farming wasn't going to make them a lot of money, but doing that, yeah, they could. Yeah. And, and Fiji needed it. As if Fijians told me more than once, oh, we're not really good at business. So what do you mean, man? You know, you could do what he does. You're as smart as him. Oh, yes, there's nothing to do with that. A Fijian fellow, he opened a business. He said, yeah. And he opened that first day. He said, yeah. Say, well, his cousin would come in and say, oh, I need that. He said, oh, here, you have that. And another Uh, cousin would come in, oh, I could use some of those. Oh, here, you must have this. And then his brother-in-law comes in and says, by the end of the day, there's nothing left in the shop. (laughs) (laughs) And he has not made one money, one dollar, not one dollar. (laughs) The Indians, you know, they're a little sharper with with the dollar. And it turns out a lot of the Indians who came were from the state of Gujarat, and I learned this as I was there longer. And the state of Gujarat in India, they call the, the natives of Gujarat as the Jews of India. So Interesting. They were supposedly sharp with business even before they got – they might have got fleeced a little bit on this deal with the British. But sharp enough, once they said, oh, this is what we're in for, that they made, you know, they made uh, lemonade out of the lemons, shall we say. Right. And uh, so the – the head of Fiji was the uh, – it was still uh, 
Thakumbao, no. Ratu, King Ratu uh, Thakumbao. Now, he was uh, the paramount chief of Fiji related to the original one uh, when they sold themselves off. And when it came independence, and he was still the chief, the head, when I was there. And he was a very wise fellow. He was older, pretty old by then. But he had a he had a, a, a phrase. He said, Fiji is like a three-legged stool. I said, oh, how is that, chief? He says, well, like a three-legged stool. You have the Fijians. They own the land. Nothing happens without the land. We all belong to the land. That's good. We have the Indians. They know the business. We cannot have a country in modern daytimes without the business. And what's that third story? Said, oh, the Europeans, the white white people, they, they have the know-how. They know how to work in the world. So, like a three-legged stool, you take out one leg, stool collapses. <laughs> so, he's a very wise, very wise fellow. He can see, eh, maybe you don't like these Indian fellows here, but they're half the population, and they're doing something we can't do. And these white fellows, we're white, what they call European European population was, percentage-wise, maybe 4%. Okay. So I've been a very acute minority in a country for a few years. Now, I was a very select minority. I was a very pampered minority, which is much different than most minorities. But that that 4% was pretty important to the way the country ran. Because, again, it was only eight years since independence. They knew you know, how things were greased and they kept things going and and maybe had did have more connections with the outside world than yeah. the Indians or the or the Fijians could have or were interested in having. You know, so they did. They worked together rather well until it didn't, but but uh that's the way things things ran. And the the Tuis uh around the country all had their areas and, and you know, like a duke, we would think in medieval times, took care of the areas and and little no bless no bleach gave out favors and jobs and and uh, took care of people and they gave him fealty and offerings and and whatnot. When I was there, I I of course didn't know that I learned this as I as I lived there. I lived there two and a half years, but I I knew just a tiny tiny tiniest little bit of this. My Encyclopedia Britannica certainly didn't dwell in any of that. But when I was there maybe a month, I was so tired of seeing the resort, as pretty as it was, as nice as it was, so tired of seeing the resort that I'd saved up enough money and I got a rental car. That's a rental car. Oh, where am I going to go? Well, the capital's too far away, so I only had one day off. I had uh, I, I worked six days a week now. You're in a beautiful place. It's gorgeous, lovely people, and a nice resort. But you only have one day off, you, and you're working. Yeah. Everyone else is on holiday, or they're working, and they go home to their family, and they do things, and they, they work five days a week like normal people. No, nah, no six days a week. I get uh, Sunday off. I get, yeah, Sunday off. And like most places, uh, Sunday's not a really good day to have off. But uh, there I was. I got my rental car for the weekend. And uh, I said, well, can't go to the Capitol. I've only got one day. It's too far. Road, the asphalt runs out after about an hour down the road. Oh, and the, there's only one road, sort of only one real paved road since of that 
asphalt right. problem. But the, the paved road going in one direction, like going west, is called the King's Road. And then going east, the same road is called the Queen's Road. So I'd see these adverts for businesses that said, so TV, this says uh, your business is on the King's Road, but I thought that was called the Queen's Road. Oh no, Scotty, it, it, it is called the it is called the King's Road, going in the direction towards the resort. <laughs> you see, is said what? <laughs> when you got one road, one main road, you right. gotta you right. know you got kings and queens, you gotta make them both happy. So uh, I didn't want to go to capital, wouldn't get much done. So I decided to go north towards the gold mines, or, and there was another. A uh, business town called Lautoka, not too far from from where we were, but I hadn't even been there. I just seen it, didn't know much about it. But it was almost as big as Nandy. Nandy had the airport, had more commercial area, but Lautoka had something. So then I'll drive up to Lautoka, and maybe well, the road goes all the way to Ba. Maybe I'll make it to Ba. Sounds good. Never been there. I don't know much about it. Let's go. So I didn't have anyone else to go with. Just jumped in my little Toyota, and off I went. I got to Lautoka, and like. 45 minutes. I wasn't much in Latoka. Again, it was Sunday. I looked around. I didn't have any place to go, especially. I don't think there was a tennis club there. Uh, so I just said, well, I looked around. Huge letdown, right? Huge letdown. Hey, tennis club, what is going on? I got my racket in my car. Come on. <laughs> Nothing to do. And I, I didn't find any place to sit down. And, and it was early yet. So I said, well, I'll just drive up, keep driving. It's pretty scenery. I hadn't seen any of the island but my little section, which is pretty. Yeah, you know, done up European. So I just drove and it's pretty, pretty nice, nice ride. The mountains in Fiji are really sort of weird being volcanic mountains. There's a, there are some good sized mountains, but when you're driving down the road, there'll be little, like, like God went, pooch, right through the, the crust of the, of the earth. And there's this little mound that looks like it should be a mountain off in the distance, but it's a, <laughs> like 50 feet from the road. Just bang. Like, I guess it was all Weird. volcanic yeah. stuff, you know, and it was it just poking up over. there. Yeah, and it's really sawtooth type of stuff that you – it just didn't seem to fit. I said, what the hell is all that? I knew about volcanism and that, but it was just a weird, otherworldly-looking place yeah. with all the jungle and these, these sawtooth things poking up at a weird perspective. But that was, that was all interesting. I finally got up to Ba, and Ba's in all, you know, at the top of the, top of the island. It was a – sugarcane town in the day and they say the it was probably made some money off of the uh, gold gold mines too but the uh when i ran when i ran up there again most things were closed i didn't know any better but there was a hotel that was open hotel bar that was a big old colonial you know rambling building and it had lights on it had a couple cars around and it was getting a bit peckish now it was about noon so i thought oh well it was afternoon actually I didn't get up that early. So, yeah, it was early afternoon. <laughs> and I could hear, you know, some something in the background, like a, like a, the radio was playing. We didn't have TV in Fiji. They decided they wouldn't have TV uh, until the whole – all the islands could be electrified, which would be never. Uh, so they, they had a, a radio channel, and it was run on an FM. And it had two radio channels, actually, run by the government – and they would run Fijian language, English language, and Hindi. And unfortunately, it wouldn't be like 92.7 is the English channel all day. 92.7 was the English channel up till noon, and then it became the Fijian channel. And the English would still be there, 
but it would jump to 91.5. So huh. interesting. Would, yeah, it was kind of I follow it. I never sort of found out why, but it would jump around. And uh, if you weren't careful, you'd be listening to some gibberish on the radio. Said, "What the hell? I don't understand. Oh, it's changed to Hindi again. God damn it! <laughs> there were too many other." Radio Russia you could get, which was their propaganda arm, actually came in better than the that? Voice of America. Yeah, wow, Radio Russia you could get back then. And it was much clearer signal than the Voice of America. Couldn't imagine why. Ah, South Pacific, we didn't care. So the uh, up at Ba, the big hotel, open. I could hear, hear sounds coming out. So I belly up to the bar and said, yeah, oh, my good man, what's, what's on offing here? And there were about three people in this big old colonial tap room and uh, I had beer on drafts. I said, I'll have one of those and had a little something to eat. Well, I'll have a sandwich How about that. And there's a fellow sitting off in the corner here and at the side of the side of the bar. And he heard me order some food. He said, you're an American. I said, well, yes, I am. And I imagine you are, too, by the sound of that voice. <laughs> he said, well, yes, I am. He comes over and says, I'm Jim, whatever his name was. I'm Jim. I'm from West Virginia. I said, what the hell are you doing in Fiji, son? He said, well, I teach I teach school. I just graduated from Univer- University of West Virginia. Well, no, I had two years, though. I said, oh, okay, you're working for the... Peace Corps. Right. <laughs> yes, I, yes, I am. So two years of college, he's teaching at the local school, I think, English, mathematics, science, and and something else. <laughs> he's teaching like four. Yeah. yeah, they teach about four subjects at the local school. Old Jim from West Virginia with the two years of college education. So Jim and I start gabbing away about this and that. He's been in Fiji Six months at least. I've been there a month. Maybe he was there a whole year. Usually you only have two years with Peace Corps. So he'd been there a little while. Yeah. And, you know, it's wondering how much Fijian he knew. Because I didn't know hardly anything. And they would say hello and goodbye. And I don't even think I learned any curse words yet. Yeah, <laughs> and that's usually the first I've thing. i the good stuff. Yeah, it's usually the first thing you learn. But I hadn't gotten that yet. Just a few basic stuff, little basic stuff. And I knew a little bit tradition, how to drink, how to drink traditionally. They they have this this stuff called uh, kava, which had become famous in America in the last few years. It's a it's a powdered uh, pepper root and uh, it's a traditional drink. You you get the powder in like a cheesecloth and and you mix it with the water and you just sort of you squeeze it and rub it and get it going, filtered through this cheesecloth, and the water just comes out. It looks like dirty Mississippi River water during their flood, you know. And and this is this is the traditional drink. I said, okay, and it's in a big big wooden carved hand carved wooden bowl called a tanoa, and it's got four legs, not three legs, like like the king's uh, idea. It's got four legged thing and. And uh, you have a little coconut shell, and you swish it around a little bit, so it's it's well mixed. And you take that coconut shell, and there's somebody in charge. He's the one who's mixed it. He'll take yeah, the coconut yeah. shell, and you you offer it to the the prestigious person. I guess the most prestigious person in a certain direction, like to the to the left, maybe. So it's like a communal thing. Yes, it's and the boys would do it at the at the. 
at the resort as a coffee break thing. They wouldn't have coffee. They'd go out and make uh, kava, huh. make this kava. And so we'd be in charge of making it. And they'd all sit around in a circle. And, and the European guys, the engineer, and his, he'd come out too. And they'd all, you know, they'd get the first offer. And then they offer it to you. You're supposed to clap. And then you take it. And I think they clap three times. And then you go, oh, take it down in one go. Okay. And no time to taste it, which is good because, again, it looks like Mississippi high flood water. Tastes good or bad? Yeah, muddy. Tastes muddy, muddy yeah. But uh, it's got a stuns your tongue. Okay. It's got a slight narcotic to it. And the tongue, after one, you could feel a little, a little something going on there. I said, oh, well, it doesn't taste that good, but not horrible. Oh, I'll have another, you know, but no, it's traditional. You have to hand it back and right. he claps, you give it to him, clap, 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 and then he'll go to the next person in line, blah, blah, blah. So you'll get another, but everyone's got to get go served. First, yeah, yeah, whether it's a king or the two-e or, or you're the knave or the, uh, the visiting dignitary, everyone gets their turn, you get your cavern, but until it's done, and then maybe they'll make some more. Maybe they won't, you know, it depends. But yeah, by the second time, you knock it out and say, yeah. So like when I had that thought, my starting to hit you. in there, I got my tongue. Yeah, it's getting a little like Novocaine. A little bit of Novocaine-y, but and that's the first thing you notice the Novocaine idea. But but uh, I found out later that it probably affects other things, being a mild narcotic of some sort. <laughs> so we, uh, you know, I, I knew a little bit of that, just a little bit. I've been there a month. I'd seen it going. I was an honored guest, so I got learned the ritual and all that. It was important. That I'd not be included in that, and uh, and he knew about it. He'd been there a year. He'd been a teacher. He knew all that stuff. But we were drinking beer at the time, so none of that mattered. We just uh, have another thank you and mm, yummy American tradition. So we had a beer too, and we sat around talking about West Virginia and how bad the football team was and Penn State and how good <laughs> they were and all this stuff. And and he came, you know, sun got a little lower and. And we were sitting there. We'd had a few of our beers and had something to eat. And in the next room, there was like a, a separate room off the, the big air hall where we were. And we could hear commotion going on there off and on. There was there was a door or maybe it wasn't a door, just a curtain or something between it. And we could see when people come in and out for more beer, there was a, a gathering out there. So we said, oh, something's going on. The boys are carrying on on a Sunday. Looks good. But we were talking football. Well, it came to a point where uh, we were about ready to leave, really, and somebody comes out from from the back room, and he he talks to my buddy Jim, and uh, talks in Fijian. I didn't understand what he said, and Jim turns to me and says, "You know, in that back room?" He said, "Yeah, they've been carrying on back there." He said, "Well, yeah, that's uh, the Tui's back there." He said, "Tui." Tui above from up here, this Tui? He said, Yeah, he's back there with his with his fellows and they're having a little bit of a, a little bit of a party and they see that we're out here and they they'd like us to join them. He said, Oh, well, about three, four, I don't know how many beers. He said, Yeah. That's fine, <laughs> let's go join them. This is something I haven't done before, you know. I can't Adventure. buy any, I can't buy anything. I can't do anything but drive my car up there and found a one place open. So I said, Yeah. Let's go join him. So he said, "Sure, let's go." So the fellow takes us off, and he, he like he's, he comes into this room, and it's maybe it's like the Last Supper. There's a fellow at the head of the table, big fella, 
big fella. The Tui. The Tui. It has, it has to be the Tui, just from the looks of him. He's pretty round. <laughs> he's pretty round, <laughs> though muscular. He's not round. Oh, he's round, but ain't fat round. Yeah. He's, he's like a... Not as round as a sumo wrestler. Not as much jiggly as that. He's got that big build, but, though. Oh, big yeah. build. Like he, could, he could knock a lot of people down at once. And a bald head. And pretty. He looked different because, and I don't know if I knew it then, because he was Tongan, Fijian. He looked just a little different than the Fijians. A different kind of fierce or a different thing in the face and the yeah. eyes. And, and color is Colorized, just a little different, you know, a little more bronzy almost, I don't know, than milk chocolate, you know, just yeah, yeah. a little different. So you knew he was something else just from the size and the look of him. And we were introduced as, as visitors from America, and, and uh, he spoke a little bit of English. He spoke some English, but he, being the two, he wouldn't speak a lot, you know, he had people speak for him. But he welcomed us and said, please, please have a seat. We're having a party. We'd like you to join us. And said, well, that's, that's lovely, sir. We've, we've had a few beers already. He said, oh, well, then you must have some more. So we all <laughs> sat around the table, and most of the conversation was in Fijian. So I couldn't understand much of anything. And most of the boys that were around the table with us, they weren't, you know, they were from that area. I don't think they were that well educated, didn't know tons of English, but we'd have some little broken conversations, or right. this or that. And then Jim could could gather a little bit of something from the fellow next to him, and he'd, he'd try to translate it to me and get a, a little idea. And, and it, it it turns out that, uh, you know, we asked uh, Tui, you know, uh, I don't know if we asked or the story came out that uh, the Tui was, you know, traditional head of the area. And, and uh, I'd met the Tui in Nandy and he was a guy about that big around and about my size and, you know, skinny as a rake and was not a very impressive fellow. Different but, Tui. Yeah, but yeah. this Tui different was kind of tui. something else. So besides being different, you know, with the Tongan and Fijian blood... Turns out that he had fought with the British, not during World War II. He wasn't that old, but he fought with the British in the British Army in the Malayan Uprising. Now, I don't know if you know anything about that. Nope. The, there was a, an uprising in Malaya, which was a British colony where Malaysia is now in Singapore, in that area of, of Asia, Southeast Asia, not too far from Vietnam, but the British section of that little area near Siam, uh, Thailand. Well, it turns out the Malaysian uprising was the only communist uh, populist uprising that had been put down by European power in all of the history. (laughs) And the British did it because two things, the Malaysian... The Malays that were uprising were mostly Chinese, ethnically Chinese. Malaysia is like Malay is in between India, China, Indochina in that area. So it's all mixed, you know, mixed racially. Okay. It's a really polyglot. But almost all the the uprisings were Chinese, ethnic Chinese, Chinese communists. They got fifth columnists in there, got them all riled up. And sure, there's plenty to get riled up about. But these insurgents were all ethnic Chinese were clustered in Chinese villages and Chinese towns and stuff. So it wasn't like the other Southeast Asian or other uprisings where you're 
uprising, people revolting were pretty indistinguishable from the neighbors. Yeah. These guys were very obviously. The British carpet bombed villages and areas that were Chinese, ethnically Chinese, and that helped suppress after wow. quite a while, helped suppress the rebellion. Now, they did leave. And it became its own country. Malaysia and Singapore sort of broke off on their own. Singapore was just the, you know, the capital, whatever. Yeah. But they broke off as a city-state. And Malaysia is its own thing. But with considerably fewer Chinese uh, population that the British helped decimate because they were the obvious guerrillas. Well, the Tui, Mba, had been a part of that. And the Tui Mba was probably not as big as he was now, but was, again, traditionally a large fellow and and a warrior in his tradition. And with training by the British, he was uh, part of an anti-insurgent group. And wow. They would, British would train these boys and maybe with a, with a British advisor, a British uh, officer, and maybe a... Uh, 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 sergeant, ma- sergeant major or something, they'd send them out in the bush for a month at a time or whatever. And these guys you know, from Fiji or Solomon Islands or wherever, they take care of themselves in the jungle. And they had basically carte blanche to kill every motherfucker that was Chinese wow. that they could find, you know, no That's question wild. to ask. So they come out, the Tui, as we found out later, Tui had a, a collection at the time of ears or fingers, I forget what it was. Now the translation eludes me. But he would come back from this this long range uh, thing with the with the group, and he had necklaces, and that was yeah. a traditional thing. His warrior, you know, his warrior ethic, and he that is wild. He got to prove it <laughs> in the Malaysian uprising. He was too too young for World War II, but British made good use. So the Tui, you know, besides being uh, of the right family and of the, he also got. The rare distinction of trying to prove, proving himself in battle and yeah. being, a, you know, of the right stuff, as it were. So we did get, I guess, some of this information as we were, as we were there drinking and, and eating a little bits and pieces, and it, it occurred to me as I listened to some of the stories and looking at the Tui that he brought to mind. Uh, a character that had been in the news not too long before for quite a few years, and it was another strong man from East Africa uh, called Idi Amin. Idi Amin had been a, a sergeant in the British colonial army back in the day, and that was as high as you could go, was sergeant. But he had trained. He had been trained. He was a good enough soldier. Been trained as a paratrooper. Been trained as special forces. Been trained as this and that. He had like four or five different trainings. But he's still sergeant. <laughs> but yeah. when the British left Uganda, that area of Africa, he ended up eventually becoming dictator of of Uganda. And he had been in the news. He looked more. I looked at his Tui. Looked exactly like the Tui, the bald head, the broad thing, the ragged, a bit of a braggadocio, though the Tui wasn't, I couldn't tell from his, that much from his manner, but he just came out of him, you know, he was yeah, a very upright right. fellow and he's just telling the stories, you could tell the guys were all <gasps> very enthralled with it, yeah. but Tui and Idi Amin, one and the same. So after a little bit of, quite a few beers and listen to stories and 
And now recognizing his fucking Idi Amin over there. He, Idi Amin, he's a dangerous fellow. (laughs) (laughs) We get, we get uh, asked, now that Tui was done with his carrying on at the hotel, it was getting dark, he would like us, us to grace his presence with uh, a trip to his home, which is up the country somewhere. He's a Tui, he's a head, he's the Duke, he's got to have a nice place. So we're looking at each other saying, do you know? I'm looking at him. Do you know where his house is? He said, well, no, it's up, up in the bush somewhere. I said, and I've seen the two of Nandy's house. It's very nice. It was the nicest house around. It was up on stilts because we were yeah. sort of a floodplain, and it was had caught the breezes, had a nice verandas around the outside. You know, it was like a beach resort house in America, a middle-class beach resort house. But everyone else was living in the villages, and if they're lucky, they had a a few buildings that were cinder block and most of them were, were not, you know, they were, they were, uh, fronds and, 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 and bamboo. But I figured, well, Tui, we got a nice place. Well, I don't know. <laughs> it's getting late. <laughs> Tui seems like a nice guy, but you know what he reminds me of? I got no, who? Reminds me of Edie mean. The guy had been there long enough, but I think he knew who Idi Amin was. Yeah. Idi Amin. Oh, my God. He does. He looks exactly like Idi Amin. I said, oh, my. Okay. 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 <laughs> we, uh, we can't go. We can't go. This is, uh, this is not a good idea. You know the Fijians. You know the Fijians are cannibals, don't you? I said, what? He said, what? You've been, you heard the stories? They were cannibals. Not a hundred years ago, they were eating people. And they were eating missionaries. You're a missionary. I just teach shadows, but you're like a missionary. And you're bigger than me. They might cast their eyes on you. I saw this guy's looking at you across the table. Looking like a snack. Yeah. I said, what? I said, you're crazy. I said, I don't know. You got eating a mean and, and has a tradition of eating Europeans. Um, okay, I'll try, I'll try to make our apologies. And yeah, so with his broken Fijian, he'd, he'd try to tell him. And the Tui would have nothing of it. No, uh, no, no, you're gone. The Tui gets what the Tui wants. Tui gets. He wanted these white boys up to see his his place. So I have a car, and he Bill doesn't. And they took Bill in one car, and I got he's one separated. of the— Yeah, uh. I got one of the retainers in my car for directions. Now, there weren't too many directions to be had because we already mentioned how many roads there are in Fiji. You had to go down the paved road about a half a mile, turn left on the gravel road that was going up the hillside, and keep going till you come to the Tui's house. So, wow, uh, all the way up the hill. Yeah, up the hill. Well, there was only one house. You got to the top of the hill. There was an open, open area. It was a nice little cinder block house. It wasn't as impressive, really, as the Tui Nandis, but... It was at a beautiful view of the countryside of his land out below him. He was up on the hill. And it was at night, but you could see it would be, I don't know if you could see the water from there. Probably could. It wasn't that far. No places that far from the water in Fiji. So it would have had a beautiful vista over his land, the Tui's land. But when we got there, we said, well, damn, it's just one place out in the middle of nowhere. Okay, Bill, what's up now? I said, oh, we're going to drink kava. I said, okay. Now, I've never had kava and beer together, but I heard <laughs> stories that is 
probably not the best combination. They'll like wine after beer, beer after right. wine. There is some combination that's better than the other, and I don't know whether you should have beer first or you should have kava first. I didn't know that much about it, but I knew there was some combination that's probably not good. And what is okay. And I didn't know where I was standing on that line. But anyway, it was kava time. So the, they brought out a big mat. We had a big old mat. They brought out the Tanoa. <coughs> Excuse me. They brought out the the good stuff from the Tui, you know, the good the good kava, whatever it was, Yangona root, the, the, the top dollar stuff because he's the Tui. And they started making up the, man, we were, Talking about this or that, and the more I look at the Tui, the more I look like Edie Almain, and Edie Almain, he's just got, yeah, Tui collected earlobes and fingers. Edie Almain, he just kills people for no, for fun. Fijians used to be cannibals. So I piece this all together. So I in put your it head. together in my adult head with the with. The beer. This is without the kava. So they mixed it. We being the honored guest. Tui gets the first first dash. We do our clapping. And then it comes back and it's Bill or me. You get the first one. Take it. Gobble it down. Pass it on. Still tasted like muddy water, but maybe a little bit better than the stuff I had. You know, common man kava. So we go around and again, I'm the can't copy the conversations too well, but Bill is just translating little dribs and drabs. We weren't learning anything new, but except that it was time to eat something. And the two thought that we're going to get the wife to make some, make some food. I said, okay, doesn't look like there's electricity up there. I'm wondering now what can the wives make that's... <laughs> Could be us. Oh, my God. <laughs> could be us. What are they going to do? The sudden get, realization. Yes, could be. It could be a lovo pit, which is a pit dug in the ground where they would put the pig and cover it up or the people and with the rocks and they build the fire. Oh, my and, God. Yes, it could have been one right up on the other side of the house. I don't know. Golly, I can't see it from here, but, you know, it should be up there. So, so the, it's just you and this other white guy and, and about you're out eight, in the middle of nowhere. Eight of the retainers with the Tui. Yep. Okay. Wow. Eight of the retainers, me and West Virginia here. And, and so, yeah, it was a little... White boys are sticking out like sore thumbs. So the two he come, come, we'll go, talk. We go up to the wife, uh, up to the house, and big room. It's got a table in the room. It's a low down table with, with I guess we would had uh, pillows and stuff around. It was uh, wasn't like an American with a big high up table. It was low down and. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a whole lot of stuff in there. Not like the Tui was a collector of anything, I guess. It was a pleasant enough room, you know, much cleaner than my house is. And woman comes out, looks like she appropriately misses Tui age-wise, and they say something back and forth. And I don't know, in my adult head, she might have given him a little side eye, but didn't give him no talk back that right. I could tell, right? And she disappears out the back. And, and she pulls the curtain. There's about... I could see about four or five other women back there, women folk back there. I said, oh, my God. Is that, what's back there in the kitchen? Is that, 
Is that daughters? Is that wives? Is that, is that a harem? I don't yeah. know if they can have that. Can they have that? I knew just enough about Fijian culture at that time to get in trouble with my mind now, right. with the beer and the kava. And my mind's going like, because now I have a, a depressant, my beer depressant, and I have my stimulant, my kava. So the brain's going ding, 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 firing off little <laughs> different ideas, bouncing off this the inside like of my head. <laughs> I just was very confused. My head is spinning. I'm lucky I didn't throw up right there, which I've been known to happen in odd cultural situations, but uh, <laughs> I did not projectile vomit at any time. I'll have you know at a time. Spoilers. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't get any spinnies, but, you know, it was very confusing about what was going on. So Tui said, oh, we eat, we eat. But we go went back for more kava because they had to do leftovers. It was basically, you know, like they would here back in the old days. What you, the big meal was probably breakfast. Right. And then you ate leftovers for lunch and dinner, yeah, you know. Day. Yeah, so they were, okay, looks like we won't have anything left. Let's do the leftovers for these bums, you know, so the girls, however many they were, or who they were, in the kitchen trying to fix something up. We go back for another couple rounds of kava. The boys have made more, ah, more Mississippi mud water. (laughs) So God knows how many I lost track of how many rounds we had, but probably as many rounds as we had beer, which was too many. And then we get called back, come time, we go. So us and all the retainers, we go up to the house, and we all sit down, and and it's stuff that I hadn't really had before. I've been staying in a hotel yeah. with European food, you know, my or the other white guys that were working in the hotel was a Dutch chef. The sous chef, pastry chef was Dutch, too, white boys. There was a, uh, the manager was, was white, Australian. Uh, the assistant manager was one of the only other Americans around. Uh, there was an engineer, you know. There was, uh, oh, there may be three or four more. We had maybe 11 Europeans uh, over, a, you know, a big hotel. And they were all managers. So 11 Europeans, and that's counting me. Right. And I, I didn't have anyone except Robin, you know, who's also European with me. I eventually got a, a Fijian kid who was a good player and I made better. But uh, so they were managing, you know, between the 10 of them, maybe a thousand people, you yeah. know, was, uh, waiters and waitresses and maintenance and everything. So that was a, that's a big deal. So there's little me who's managing one other European person and, and my West Virginia boy who's teaching four or five subjects he doesn't know anything about <laughs> and the Tui who uh, could be a cannibal and is uh has at least chopped off fingers and ears from uh chinese rebels oh my god in malaysia what's going to happen so we're eating this food i'd never seen before but it wasn't obnoxious and it wasn't was it meat too spicy was it? i have no idea i don't know i've had i i i'm thinking it's a tapioca uh which is not you know, a sweet tapioca that we okay. have, but the starch tapioca we who would have there, and I had it. I'd had it since, but I think we had the tapioca. We had we did have some meat, pork probably, which I didn't think of. It probably wasn't refrigerated, but at least it was cooked rather early. Oh, did I mention that the the Fijian translation for pork, since that's not native to Fiji, was brought in by the sailors. The trans, but you know, they had pork early on since there were always sailors there. The translation for uh, people meat is long pig, 
Oh, jeez. <laughs> when you're talking about talking about that guy you're eating some pork. Yeah, it could as far as I know, you wow. know, maybe it doesn't taste like chicken. Maybe it's called long pig because you oh, taste like, <laughs> you taste like pork. I don't know, but it did probably ricochet through my mind with the with all the uh things I had going on there. And knowing a little bit about a culture is sometimes worse than knowing nothing right. at all. Yeah, so, your brain just keeps yes, wandering. You, you have no brain. idea. And I was young enough to have a vivid imagination. I probably wouldn't venture so far nowadays as I did back then. But, hey, this is an adventure anyhow. So anything could be happening in my brain just like it was happening here in front of me. So we all gobbled up our stuff after a hard day of beer drinking in Yakona. Uh, we had a bit of an appetite, and we gobbled it all up. Girls, of course, cleared the things, and I saw there was about six different women and of indeterminate age because I hadn't been there long enough to figure out, but none of them were children children. Right. They were all somewhere in the range of teen to who I thought was the missus who was 30, 40, I guess, and 40-ish maybe. But you know, they have very good they have very good genetics up there, not a lot of wrinkles and whatnot. So I couldn't tell. So things getting cleared up. What else? We're gonna go back and drink some more kava now. And done with the food. Let's have wow. a little dessert Round kava. Three. Yeah. So we're back for some more clapping and drinking and and when we get done with that, I guess we get a signal or something, or the Tui sends one of the boys off and said, All right, everything's cleaned up and from what we gather, the two he sends, tells the retainers, all right, night's done. Good night, boys. Well done. Job. Let's go. So I said, you, you come with us. They tell us, or Bill determines, he says, oh, the two he wants us to come up. I said, oh, okay, well, just saying good night to the ladies. That's, that's fine. They made a fine meal. <laughs> It's a fine meal. Let's go say hello. goodbye to the ladies. How are your wits at this point? Are you just like, is your head just spinning? Or you? It's sort of with that weird combination of beer and, yeah, the and kava. Maybe I hit the right groove on it where I was not thinking, say, perfectly. It was not muddled brain. It was probably just slowed down with weird things going on brain so it was different it was abnormal brain right it wasn't regular but <laughs> not bad it's like when i had if i had been drinking beer that long i would have been really stupid yeah. and very slurry i didn't even speak that badly that i know of <laughs> but i didn't have much to say seeing i didn't speak fijian right uh but i think my diction was perfectly clear at the time so he summons you up where? Uh, we summoned back to the house. And now the kitchen, I mean, the, the dining room and the kitchen were empty of people. And the next room to the right and pulled the curtain or went through the drapes, whatever the hell we did. And there was a room full of the fairer sex. Now, the, uh, it was dark. There's no electricity. There's lamps and not a lot. So there wasn't a whole lot of light. But I could see this room, and I knew enough about a communal society to know that this was like uh, sort of a longhouse bedroom. Everyone together. Now, everyone together means, well, there were no brothers that I saw. <laughs> Some of these retainers were brothers. They were all daughters or 
wives. Yeah. Maybe they were sister wives. We didn't have that phrase back then. But we didn't know. And my expert buddy here, Bill from West Virginia, could not elucidate me on the situation culturally or of a a sharp opinion either way. So here is a whole room full of ladies of various ages, but all quite attractive, certainly. After the kava and are the, they hanging out or like are they? Are they they're s- not. They are not naked. <laughs> they are. Fijians are not not too crazy. Uh, they are in bed, however, and they have some kind. Either the covers are up. The vision I have now is not seeing tons of flesh, but covered though. The behind very. Thin covering, shall there we say? You go. Yes, that, that, shall we say? And uh, the Tui is saying something to us, and Mr. West Virginia is, I guess, his brain being younger than me, his brain is probably more addled, which I had no consideration whatsoever at that time, since he was my only link to reality, <laughs> speaking a tiniest bit of Fijian, as opposed to me, you could say hello and goodbye. Uh, but what is he saying? So, well, he's, he's, he, he would like us to stay and either, uh, he would like us to, to pick one of the ladies to stay with, or he's offering all, all the ladies to us. I said, Bill, which one is it? Which one is it? <laughs> is it all the ladies? Is it something? Are they daughters? Are they wives? What are they? I can't exactly tell that from the phrase. Oh, they said, man. you don't know if their daughters <laughs> or wives are, what are we supposed to do? We weren't eating just now. This is a big plus. We got through kava. We got through dinner. We weren't the main course. This is very good. There was no lovo in the back for us. But now you're telling me there are a room full of ladies and one tui. And us too, and you don't know what the situation yeah, like, what is. What are we supposed to do here? This is a diplomatic disaster waiting to happen if we make a wrong choice. Now, logically, of course, you say, "Well, thank you, but no, thank you," and that's what I was hoping to get across. Thank you, but no, thank you. <laughs> but certainly, that could be considered a, a definite faux pas, right. In many cultures as well. Uh, and diving right in head first, probably not the most agreeable of the choices, though certainly at that time and age, that would be my first choice, probably. <laughs> did not, uh, it was not at that time, you know, with the two variables here of the alcohol and the kava. It was not primary, however, in, right. my, in my mind. My primary in my mind is survive. how the hell do we get out of yeah, here? Yeah, right? Not make a bad mistake and the boys come back and chop us up for long pig. Right? I don't know how we do this. Bill, you got to help me here. I said, well, I, I don't really know. I said, can we ask? I said, well, that wouldn't be quite the thing. I said, ah, Bill, 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 what are we going to do? All right, look, 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 look. I have one day off a week. I rented a car. I came up here, ran into you. I don't know you, but you're a good American boy, so we're going to say this. He understands Western culture. He worked for the British. Yeah, yes, he did. Okay. He understands the uh, the concept of work 
and how Europeans are sort of hung up on this concept, does he? Well, I assume so. Yes, he was working for the British. Oh, yes. At a, a trade that we're not too sure about what it was, do we? <laughs> all, right, all right. All right. But he understands this. Now, tell him, I work in Nandy, which is a considerable distance now, two hours on a decent road. And I have to work tomorrow morning. It is now by my watch. I'm thinking about 10, 1030 at night. We have to, I have to get back to Nandy. You, I will drop off at the hotel, but I have to get back to Nandy. As much as I'll enjoy a romp with the sister wives or whoever they are, this is a very lovely offer. If it is an offer, I need to go back to work. They will be sending the Marines out after me. All they know is I rented a car and came up. North somewhere, yep. looking for adventure. <laughs> and if I don't show up tomorrow, the Marines will be here. Tell him that. <laughs> so, so Bill somehow conveyed the situation. And uh, I guess he knew enough Fijian or perhaps the two he could tell by my agitated uh, display that I was serious that I had to go <laughs> and that as lovely as it would be to dive in head first to the the pulchritude, the Fijian pulchritude, I, of which we did know nothing about uh, who they were, it probably wasn't the best diplomatic solution at this time. Yeah. So somehow Bill did a good enough job. The two, we did not get disappointed enough to have us for dinner. And we did almost like a... Uh, a, uh, a Hope and Crosby, yeah. a salam out, you know, backing our way out. Right, 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 right. I right. felt very much like the road to Morocco or something. A fun on the road to Mbaha. <laughs> and we sort of salamed our way out and dashed to the automobile. Wow. And no one chased us with spears or anything. So I guessed Bill had... Unless the two, he was just winding us up, which could have been the case. We don't know to this day. We managed to get in the car, and there was only one way down the hill. Came to this asphalt road, went to the hotel where Bill had his car or whatever, or he lived right near there. And I adjourned on the two-hour, hour-and-a-half trip back down to Nandy. Now, (sighs) escaping all that, I was marveling. At the lovely Fijian sky, I think I had a sunroof in the car, and as I was driving down, I forget if it was the Queens or the Kings Highway going south, so I was driving down the highway looking at the the Milky Way and the Southern Cross up there in the sky, there was very suddenly a very sharp boom, and driving in Fiji, which is driving on the wrong side of the road for us Americans, it had, it had come to pass that in my... Uh, adult state, that perhaps I had watched the sky a little too long and my car had bumped up against the curb and thankfully it was small enough that it didn't jump over the curb, but I was coming upon a traffic circle, the only traffic circle perhaps in the whole entire part of that country and if I wouldn't have been if I wouldn't have been bumping up against a curb, I might have gone headlong into the cement abutment of the traffic circle wow. and ruined the car and myself. God knows if I had a seatbelt on at that time. But having kava and beer, perhaps I would have flown right through the windscreen and not been damaged at all. Who can tell? And then the Tui Mba could have had 
a roadkill version of a, of a <laughs> fine back. meal. Yes. <laughs> so they didn't get me that time. Tui didn't have me. Unfortunately, I didn't have the uh, Fijian nymphs, whoever they were. And uh, <laughs> I never had another offer like that in my life. So I got what I deserved, I guess. No good deed goes unpunished. That Huzzah. is so wild. <laughs> It's certainly more than you bargained for, but a different version of it. Right. Less cannibal, more carn. What is it? What is the English word for uh, for sexual cravings as opposed to uh, (laughs) carn? Yes, I can't remember, but we managed not to get in any trouble either way. I'm glad you're alive, Uncle Scott. That's <laughs> long pig. I am very pig-like, but not very long. So <laughs> I would have been a fine meal. Oh, Lordy. Well, thanks for sharing the story. Well, you're welcome. And that was in a day before you was born, young fellow. Huzzah. It was wonderful. Before the 80s. <laughs> the days of stagflation, people, and Jimmy Carter. Ah, the good old days before Ronald Reagan. Here we go. <laughs> Well, there you go again, Nathan. Every time. Every time. All right, let's get out of here, Uncle Scott. Thanks so much again for uh, sharing the story. Oh, you're more than welcome. I'm sorry. We'll have to do it again. We'll have to hit some other good stuff. I know you have have plenty in the books. Oh, I don't know. That's the biggest one. (laughs) (laughs) You don't get in cannibalism and international incident and a sexual escapade all in one story, young man. You don't. No. need to make a movie about this. Yes. I think (laughs) Hope and Crosby would be their best bet right there. Right there. Oh, good Lord. That's it. (laughs) All right. Peace out. Adios, peoples. Live long and prosper. (laughs) 